What's up, Athenian? How's it going, my friend? Hey, what's up, brother? It's good to be back on the on the hog with you. Yes, it has been too long. Uh, we need to we need to bring back spaces. Let's do it, brother. I am, uh, you know, I have a, a little intro planned, but uh, maybe we can start with some pre-show banter because I was reading the origin of the work of art. I think with a different mindset than you, but for the same reason, if that makes any sense. Um, We're both, we kind of started this overcoming nihilism uh, series together. And it kind of grew legs of its own, which I think is amazing. And uh, this is the fourth one that I've been a part of, or at least that I've hosted. And, um, you know, I started looking at at art uh how do i say this um well i started i started looking at the idea that art has declined and it's reached a terminal decline and uh the possibility that we can't get it back um that it can't serve the same role that it served in the past for culture and um, it's kind of a distressing thing. And I sort of came to the conclusion that if there is some way to overcome nihilism culturally, art may perhaps be one of the only ways to do that. So I read a whole bunch of stuff uh, in this vein. And it turns out me and you were reading some of the same stuff, but y- you were as far as I understand it, looking at it in terms of uh, nihilism and technology. Do I have that correct? Yeah, this is one of those one of those rare moments when two people stumbled upon the same thing almost at the exact same time. Because I, yeah, I, I forget which group chat it is, but all of a sudden it, it was almost literally on the same day that we were bringing up the essay. Um, my yeah, it it was it was the same day that we both started decide we decided to read yeah. It independently of each other yeah i stumbled across it because i had been going through Junger's essay on over the line again and the first time i read it i i missed a passage where he points out that the the word that heidegger uses for a title of a collection of essays he says it's a beautiful word and uh, Junger uses it to describe what in the correspondence he's having with Heidegger, their letters, uh, what he's going to describe as the imagery of the forest. And that's where he's going to get the title for the forest passage. And for me, I was like, holy shit, wait a minute. I've got that collection of Heidegger's essays. And so I grabbed it. And the, the first, the first essay in the collection is exactly this essay, the origin of the, the work of art. And so, for me, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, hold on a second. Uh, Junger is directly referencing a collection of essays. So he clearly has read the collection of essays. So the very least I can do to try to follow Junger here is to read that same collection of essays and then better try to understand how Junger or what Junger is, is responding to here. And so I picked it up and I started reading that particular essay 
And then that was, I think, the same day you had mentioned something about it. And, I'll, and I just thought to myself, holy shit. I think I mentioned this in the group chat. I was like, holy shit. I said, everything that, that I'm doing for this technology and nihilism series is, is coming back around to that particular essay there. And the more I keep reading it. And then Alejandro, um, he should be in here. I don't know. He, he has uh, sometimes connection issues, of which I might have tonight because the desert has just been horrible today. But he's here. He's here. We'll bring him up. But yeah, um, I, I had been asking Alejandro a few things about it because he he knows an awful lot about Heidegger. And he and my other good friend RS here have been doing a few spaces on Heidegger together. And so he jumped in on it. And I, I don't know of a better researcher than Alejandro. I mean, he's he's the go to guy if you have any questions about original source material. And I, I had asked him a particular question. It was so funny because he said, uh, he said, he said, all right, let's do some research. And so I was thinking that he was going to get back to me like in a few days or something. And bef within the hour, he was sending me uh, numerous primary sources and places to look for a particular question in Heidegger that I had. And it was just it was it was so wonderful because I was thinking this I, I, I am among friends here. Like this, this is my natural habitat. Uh, and so it was great. And then uh, our investigations of it just took off from there. And then he mentioned some things to me that I would not have otherwise even really thought of regarding what else Heidegger was writing at the same time that he writes this essay. And then it really just all begins to unfold from there. And you just start to think to yourself, okay, holy shit, all of the pieces of the puzzle are coming together now for a, a, just a very, very powerful understanding of what Heidegger has in mind and what he's getting at in this essay in particular, but in his thought in general. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't, I just, you're uh, Oh yeah, no, no, no. Look, look, uh, we're, it's monsoon season out here in the desert. I woke up with a screaming headache and in order to combat that headache today, unfortunately I did two doses of my pre-workout drink full of caffeine to try to stop the headache. And so I'm, it's possible I might be completely scatterbrained and uh, just all over the place. So. Yeah. Well, I'm on two shots of espresso, uh, about 90 milligrams of Sudafed and a tall glass of rum. So uh, we're, we're, you're in good company. So listen, uh, for those of you who are interested in drilling down or elaborating more on the Heidegger essay itself, uh, I think we'll probably do that at the end. I'd like to start with an overview of the concept in general, is the work of art possible? And then, um, you know, when RS and Alejandro join after the general discussion, maybe we can get into some of the details or specifics of the essay. I want to make a couple things clear. This is still the preliminary comments here. Um, the first is that uh, I will never tire of mentioning that uh, Athenian and I do essentially no prep together. We just are on the same page all the time. <laughs> so I know that I can just kind of come to this guy and say, hey, this is what I've been doing. Would you like to join me? And I know that he'll be right there with me and I don't need to. We, we, we basically never share notes or anything. Uh, the other thing I want to say is that this Heidegger essay is for those of you who are interested in Heidegger and who haven't read him or are, have some familiarity with him, but haven't broken through yet, because you kind of do have to break through with Heidegger. I would say, as somebody who's read a, a, a fair amount of Heidegger, uh, much less than the academics, but uh, 
I've read enough that I feel like I can say this is the place you need to start. Um, it, it crystallizes a lot of his ideas. It makes clear a lot of his ideas. He's a very, very obfuscatory writer. And this is probably his most accessible essay. Uh, you don't really need any extra work. And it gives you insight into the broader, you know, world we're living in today, more so almost even than question concerning technology. Uh, you you kind of can't understand that essay without this one. So, so, but, but the, the beginning, the initial discussion here is not intended to be a, a, a uh, hermeneutic, as Heidegger would say, of the origin of the work of art. Rather, of all the things I've read in prep for this, it's probably uh, the most lucid and informative of the perspective I'm trying to communicate. So just so you know, um, you kind of have to accept that A, we are living in an age of nihilism now, that, that we accept uh, Nietzsche's premise of the death of God. And um, nihilism to us is not controversial. I find that like what nihilism is, is not really much of a question. I find that if you go to like the literature, the academic literature or the popular literature on nihilism and existentialism, they spend most of their time hemming, on, hemming and hawing on what is nihilism. And some people I've heard, you know, scholars go as far as to say that, like, well, you can't really define nihilism. Nobody really knows what nihilism is. Everybody has a different definition of nihilism. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. We live in a materialistic age uh, and we live in a nihilistic age. And uh, 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 Athenian mentioned the Junger essay uh, over the line. The translation I have calls it across the line. And if you're interested in uh, understanding what nihilism is, I would say even before reading Nietzsche, you should read Across the Line. It's difficult in the sense that it's kind of depressing. And I even said to Athenian, like, dude, I tried to read that essay. I got about halfway through and it, it, it's pretty depressing. And he said, well, I understand. You're probably right. You need to read the Forest Passage. And I said, well, I already read the Forest Passage. And he said, OK, <coughs> pardon me then make sure you read the last two paragraphs. So I said, okay, I can't, I can't just read the last two paragraphs. I have to finish this thing. So I finished it uh, today or yesterday. And I'm glad I did. Because now I can say uh, declaratively that if you read the people who grapple with nihilism, if you lead the, now, 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 without, you know, if you haven't heard our first essay in which we, we, excuse me, if you haven't heard, heard our first episode in which we, define what nihilism is and give examples of it and de definitively decide that we live in a nihilistic age and that nihilism is the, the mode of being uh, that defines our age. And it is the, the challenge of our age. Like if you care about like the, the, the health of your culture, the thing you need to grapple with is nihilism. And you need to find a way for us to deal with nihilism. Uh, because it is something, and Junger makes this very clear, it is something that will subsume and suck the life out of every single thing you try to do. It will, it will, it will dash any project that you or your culture attempts to erect in the face of materialism or nihilism. 
uh, it will dash it into a million pieces and reduce it to the gray rubble that uh, that liberalism uh, instantiates. You could use the term egalitarianism. You can use the term equality. You could use the term uh, communism. But I prefer to use the term liberalism because even on the right and even in conservative circles, liberalism is not a bad word. Uh, people people try to argue for liberalism. But, you know, Spengler, Junger, Heidegger and others make it very clear that liberalism is, in fact, the enemy and liberalism is, in fact, the problem. And, uh, you know, I won't go through a name drop here, but if you if you read the existentialists and we'll put Junger in in that category, too. They all say the same things, basically. They all say the same things at the end of the day. They say that uh, nihilism is gripping our age. It is not going to be overcome or defeated in any sort of uh, historic way that we are, in fact, living in a period or a phase or an epoch that is defined by nihilism. And it is going to uh, drain the vitality from your culture and it is going to subvert anything you tried to do. And now Younger goes through this in, in great detail in the essay across the line. However, he does at the very end uh, say there are two things that, that, you can, that we can do to, to overcome nihilism. One of them I'm not really going to talk about today. Athenian, uh, feel free to elaborate on this if you'd like, but it's not going to be the focus of our discussion. The one, thing he sa- one of the things he says is eros and the muse can overcome nihilism. And eros uh, gives birth to the muse. And he says that the muse... Uh, will not succumb to nihilism. The muse cannot be defeated by nihilism. And the muse, of course, without defining it too, too, too elaborately, is basically uh, this metaphysical source of inspiration. It's a metaphysical source that will inspire people to make art. And that's the other thing he says we can do to overcome nihilism, is make art. Heidegger says the same thing, but... But there's a catch here. And the, the catch is uh, the basis of our discussion tonight. The catch here is that uh, overcoming nihilism, escaping nihilism, de- defeating nihilism is not something that you can just decide to do one day and make happen. And then you, uh, you know, sally forth to defeat it and, and you vanquish the Leviathan that is nihilism and uh, you, you, arrive, you, you emerge victorious. It's a process that everyone, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Junger, Heidegger, Spengler, all of them, they all say that it's a process that will take generations. And here is what the work of art can do. And this is, uh, this is agreed upon by, by these thinkers. The work of art can gesture towards something greater. It can, it can hold a place for something beyond the ego or beyond civilization, something beyond uh, the materialist culture that that is uh, captured our age. It's something that can sort of uh, represent or or provide uh, a connection to the divine or to God. But it does so in a nihilistic age in a very different way than it did in the past. Because in an earlier, earlier phase, 
and Hegel gets into this. And Hegel is kind of, for me, where this all starts, although he, he's actually the end of a movement. But uh, for me, he's kind of the one who, who starts this all for these later thinkers that we are focusing on. So for us tonight, he's the beginning. Because in an earlier time, in an earlier culture, the work of art was, was the embodiment of the divine. It was not a symbol or a simulacrum or a representation of the divine. It didn't gesture towards the divine. It was itself a piece of the divine. That if you came before it, it would put you in contact with the divine. So if you live in a profane world, or if you live in a world, you know, like the ancients did or the medievals did, which isn't profane, it's a chaotic world that is populated by beings of all different types, uh, evil, good, uh, benign, helpful, whatever. Uh, the work of art in a religious temple or in a cathedral is something that you could go to to sort of recenter yourself, connect yourself to the divine and be imbued or inspired or, 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 uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Reinvigorated by the divine and, and go through your life animated by the divine and by the sacred. And it's something that you were able to, to continually connect with so that you, you experience it all the time. So the work of art, you know, one thing they say, for example, is that uh, in, a, in a Greek temple, there's a statue of a god in there. The Greek temple was itself the house of God, and the statue was the god itself. It was, it was imbued with a piece of the divine, and that when you go there to worship, uh, it's not a, an intellectual experience. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, carnal experience, right? And you would also take part in a ritual. You would take part in a ritual that involved sacred items, chalices and saucers that, that had food that were offerings to the God. So all of these crafted items that were made by an artist were not there uh, to beautify the, the environment. They were not there to, uh, to comment or reflect upon any sort of a perspective on the world. They were there to, to be a tool, really, a tool for your communi communion with the transcendent realm or with a higher power. So in other words, uh, keep this in mind. We're going to come back to this. It didn't gesture towards God. It was God. Okay. But as time goes on, this sort of immediate carnal experience with the divine, with the work of art, becomes superseded by what I'm going to call intellectualism or insights or criticism or understanding. And, and it becomes the work of art in a later time becomes something different than, than, a, than a sacred object. It becomes an adornment. It becomes an object of beautification. It becomes an object of contemplation, okay? Contemplation and prayer are two very different things that need to be distinguished from each other. Because if you go and interact with a piece of art or constructed piece of craft, and you're praying to God, it's all an integrated experience. 
But if you are observing a piece of art and you're contemplating it, it's an intellectual, individual experience that totally changes the nature of the piece of art itself. And it changes the relationship the culture has to the art itself. And according to Hegel, this is why I bring Hegel up. According to Hegel, this understanding, this intellectualism, this criticism of art, this, this insight into art, rather than the immediate experience of art, it over time uh, fundamentally changes the relationship of the entire culture to the art itself. And art becomes something different for that culture, if you understand what I'm saying. So, so instead of living the myth, instead of living the religion and participating in it uh, as you do in a Greek temple or, or in a medieval cathedral, right? Because a medieval cathedral, the whole idea behind the, like the vaulted ceilings is that you're raising it up to capture or encapsulate a piece of heaven so that when you walk into it, you are, you are walking into sacred space, okay? Which, when you walk into a museum or a gallery, that's not what you're doing. You're not walking into a sacred place to have this rapturous religious experience. You're walking into a house of art and the, the, the work of art itself is a different thing. So I see Athenian's hands coming up. So the basic insight here that I'm taking from Hegel is that once this happens and enough time goes by, the, the relationship to the work of art changes and the work of art becomes a different entity becomes a different ontological object for lack of a better term it becomes a different object within the culture and it's not integrated into the culture anymore it's distilled out of the culture but but nonetheless at this time it's still able to embody a higher reality or a higher truth your encounter with the work of art in that in that period is still an experience that transcends your day-to-day -day life. And it does so for many reasons. Uh, but I'm going to finish up here and we'll get back to this. That phase also passes away and you become and you get into uh, what I'll call a nihilistic phase or a materialistic phase where the work of art is no longer a piece of a religious ritual nor is it, a, is it a distilled encounter with truth or higher beauty or higher reality. Uh, and, and it's not even this intellectual, it's not even this intellectual, personal, contemplative experience. Rather, it becomes uh, a bauble. It becomes a, a fetishistic object of, say, entertainment or beautification. It becomes an adornment. It becomes uh, something to throw away. Uh, it becomes, it becomes a novelty. This is where technology comes in. This is a very broad overview, very, very broad overview. But this is where technology comes in. Because, you know, prior to uh, the era of mechanical uh, reproduction, you had to either travel to go see a piece of art. Okay, because at first it starts that everybody has this art. <clears throat> In their day-to-day -day lives your village has a temple it has a cathedral where you could go and you could encounter the sacred you could encounter the work of art then the work of art is in in, in a rich patron's house or 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 in their uh 
collection or it's in a museum and you have to travel to go see it well the work of art itself travels around so people get the chance to see it in the different places it goes but then in a nihilistic age in a mechanistic industrial age you can mass produce this piece of art and it just becomes a commodity it just becomes a poster the, a van gogh painting that you used to have to travel to to oh my god belgium <laughs> uh to to see his uh fuck where's I brain farted on where he's from, isn't he? Yes, he's Dutch. You have to travel to the Netherlands to see where uh, his work is, or France to see the Impressionist work. Now you can just buy a, a buy a poster at the college store and hang it in your dorm room, and all of a sudden you have quote unquote a piece of art there. Or you, you know you don't have to go see a Greek statue in 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 its marble perfection. You can buy a fucking Hasbro toy with like the human form a plastic mold of a human form made in China mass produced to millions of consumers. And you just kind of, it's kind of a piece of the background. It's just part of the tapestry of the materialistic consumer society you live in. Now, all of this stuff becomes very, very, very important for Heidegger. Okay. Because he, he meticulously details all of these things that I'm talking about. And he goes through all of these phases I'm talking about. And he talks about the characteristics of the work of art uh, and what, what remains after the work of art is degraded in this way. So the work of art is degraded by these things because its properties are exhausted and its, its higher position, its higher status in your culture is brought low and it gets turned into just another, you know, piece of crap that you have in your house so the work of art has to overcome that status it has to overcome that status and in some cases it falls into folly we have uh abstract expressionism and we have um ex expressionist art where the art itself is garbage but uh you know you're supposed to have this uh deeper intellectual understanding you know, of this, this modernist uh, conceptual art. Conceptual art is, is exactly the problem that Hegel was talking about. It's pure conception, and the art is secondary. The, the stuff they're calling art can be anything. It can be a literal urinal or, or a jar of piss or, 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 or shit, actual <laughs> shit. It doesn't matter what the art is. The concept is what's important in this stuff, and it's, it's, complete, it's completely... Uh, illusory it's nothing it's absolutely nothing right and then you have the commodity that i talked about so the work of art has to somehow overcome this and resist being degraded in this way and it's nearly impossible it's nearly impossible for the work of art to do that so the question tonight is is the work of art possible in these conditions and i think heidegger says yes it is but but we can only expect so much in these conditions because what Heidegger and Junger both say, and I think, I think Junger says it first, but maybe Heidegger says it first. I'm not sure. Heidegger says it in the Dear Spiegel interview. Junger says it in the essay Across the Line. I'm juxtaposing the work of art in a religious mythical era in which it is a piece of the religious ceremony that is incorporated into your connection with the divinity. So it's immediate. Heidegger and Junger say now in a nihilistic age, because they, because Junger is explicit about saying this. Junger explicitly says that religion is 
overcome by nihilism. Religion is not a way to overcome nihilism. That religion maybe offers a temporary readout, which, by the way, Dostoevsky says the same thing, too. Uh, religion may offer a temporary readout, but it cannot overcome nihilism in and of itself. And, and I think this is quite clear now when you have rainbow flags painting the steps of a cathedral and you have uh, female uh, lesbian preachers or, or, or priests uh, and you have all this other nonsense. Younger says, Younger says this, that evidence that religion can't overcome nihilism is when religion, instead of sticking to its tradition, embodies and incorporates the, the, the culture and the cultural norms and the morality of the day. If your religion is incorporating the morality of the popular morality of the day, your religion has failed to overcome nihilism. But according to Heidegger and Junger, art, art has the potential and the possibility not to succumb to this because, not because it embodies the divine, but because it gestures towards the divine, but because it indicates the divine, because you know, and we know, and the artist knows, and the work of art itself represents the fact that the divine and the higher truth exists, that it is out there. We are just not in contact with it in the same way that we were, but we will be someday. But this brings up a, a, a large number of questions that I think Athenian will address. So Athenian, I'm going to let you go in one second. Um, all of these people think pessimism is a, a better position to take than optimism. But the reason why is because the pessimist knows things are not going to get better for us tomorrow. Okay. The optimism hangs on, the optimist hangs on to this hope that things are going to get better and that things are going to change. But the pessimist knows that that's not true. The pessimist knows that the lost, the last position has been lost, that the end happened in the past and that we are living after the end, <laughs> after the end was over. Uh, life goes on, but, 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 but the end <laughs> is in the past. That, 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 that's, that's a tough thing to, I mean, if you don't accept that statement, I'm not going to be able to, to clarify it for you. Therefore, nihilism, in nihilism, you're kind of empty atoms bumping around in a void with no direction. The work of art points the way forward. The work of art gestures to the future when this nihilistic epoch has burnt itself out and something new is able to, to be born. The work of art indicates that there's a germ, that, is, that there's a seed that is going to germinate sometime in the future. And that according to these guys, uh, all we can do is make art and, and interact with art as, as a way to connect us to the future uh, revelation or the future reconnection with the divine. So I'm going to let Athenian come in here. But, you know, if you don't buy all of that, don't worry. I can clarify it, it when we come back. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, let me, uh, let me just sort of 
let me just sort of introduce the way that, that I have come into this. And I'm, I'm by no means uh, disagreeing with anything you say. I'm just, uh, what I'm, I'm just providing a, the way that, that I came into this, which might also be helpful for others who are, who are listening because Heidegger is very difficult. And even to the extent that you were saying this might be one of his best entry level essays, um, I want to caution people. It's it's by no means easy. This is <laughs> this is not for the faint of heart. Um, so the the last paragraph that I was uh, mentioning to Astral to to make sure that he gets to um, in the the Junger essay, which is um, the word is Uber, so it could be across or over. I mean, it's it's just sort of you know how we think of things uh, going over or crossing a threshold point is what the essay is about. And the threshold point is, of course, Fredo uh, requests a mic. Um, and, and the threshold point he's referring to is nihilism. And so to the extent that one either believes in nihilism or does not believe in nihilism, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because the fact is that nihilism has everything to do with us. So whether we want to believe it or not believe it, it doesn't matter. The world in which we live presently is peopled, we could say, with those who are simply default nihilists. It's just the way our culture is. Uh, I like to say that we've all seen those stupid tweets by a lot of those large accounts that say, you know, tell me what woke means. And then they just attack everyone who tries to give a, a definition of it. Uh, woke is just simply nihilism. It's the casual popular understanding of nihilism, the fluidity and flux of all things including and especially male and female and these kinds of things. But what Junger says in his, it's, a, it's the very last paragraph and it's, it's really good. He's, and I'll just read it. He says, he says, the accusation of nihilism is among the most popular today. He said, and everyone likes to deploy it against his opponents. He said, it's likely that all are justified. He said, we should then reproach ourselves and not linger with those tirelessly on the search for culprits. Those would be all the virtue signalers that we see. He says, he knows the age least who has not experienced the immense power of nothing. The translator capitalizes nothing there. He's talking about this feeling of nihilism. He says, he knows the age least who has not experienced the immense power of nothing in himself and has not been tempted by it. That's the key right there. Whether one gets tempted by this thing we call nihilism which is to say no fundamental or foundational principles to guide oneself throughout life. And he says, he says the authentic heart, he says that is the center of the world of deserts and ruin. Now uh, he's drifting into some imagery here that we just don't have time to get into, but he's getting a lot of that from Nietzsche. But the, the point is that the world in which we live in presently is nihilistic. It's that simple. And compounding that is the fact that everyone loves to attach a kind of morality to nihilism by saying, oh, you're, you're a nihilist, bad. Or, oh, look, I'm a nihilist, so I'm better than you. That's, that's not the issue with Junger. Junger's flatly putting everything on the table and saying, look, here's the situation as it stands. We have to find a way through this or out of it or at least deal with it, certainly. Uh, there, are there are very powerful, practical things that need to be taking place. And just before that essay is when he references the writing by Heidegger, which is the collection of essays that is this essay that Astral is talking about is the first two. And what we find in that essay 
is that, and this is, by the way, this is uh, just kind of a sidebar, but a very, very important sidebar, actually a crucial sidebar, really. This is what Alejandro brought to my attention. It just so happens that at the same time that Heidegger releases this collection of essays, it's his first essays after the World War that comes out. He's been through a period of silence because of the wars, and this collection of essays is the first that comes out. What he's also working on immediately in that time is the volumes that are going to be published on Nietzsche. And the first volume, there's four volumes in English, they're translated into a two-volume set. Each volume contains two volumes of the original German. The, the first volume to that set is called The Will to Power as Art, or Art as the Will to Power. So Heidegger is grappling with Nietzsche's understanding of art and what Heidegger is going to make of Nietzsche with regard to the will to power. So art is going to be the most powerful element of the very being of man himself, which is to say will to power. So, so that's important to keep in mind. And the opening of the essay really sort of reveals in one regard how complicated it is, but also what's at issue with this thing called art. And what he says, he, he, he talks about the, the origin of the work of the artist. And he, he plays around there with this word, the work of the art. And so there's some wordplay going on between work versus art. And he says, which is it? He goes, what is, he goes, the relationship between the artist and his work, what is this? He says, on the one hand, you have the artisan. And then on the other hand, uh, you have the art. He goes, but there's the work that goes between them. So which comes first? It's kind of like the chicken or the egg question of, you know, where is the relationship of this thing we call art in uh, this relationship between artisan and his his product, his artifact, his art. And he's going to say, well, it happens, it's simultaneous. He's, you know, the work is dependent upon the artist. I'm sorry, the art is dependent on the work of the artist, while at the same time, the artist is in many ways dependent on his work. And so he says that it slips into this kind of circle. And for those familiar with Heidegger, certainly being in time, which he had already published by at least um, five or six years, is at issue in being in time is this question of the so-called hermeneutical circle, which is to say, how do we work our way into problems? Because we have to somehow be connected to these problems to even understand them as problems. And so that's why when you read through anything that Heidegger's written, you, you get the sense that he's literally guiding you step by step into the question. So he's, he's finding a way to make whatever he was talking about question worthy for you. It's not, it's not that Heidegger provides treatises or essays. It's, it's sort of like you're sitting down with a personal tutor of one of the greatest minds who's ever lived. And he's showing you how the problems arise from our kind of everyday experience with these things. And for art, what's so important about it on the one hand is that he's, he's following Nietzsche and understanding the, the way in which art is so incredibly crucial to this phenomenon of nihilism and the problem of, I guess we could say, man's being as such. But at the same time, 
Heidegger is taking us back uh, because Heidegger is so heavily dependent upon what we would otherwise think of as philology, which is to say the meaning of words on the one hand. I mean, there's, there's far more to it. Uh, I would direct anyone to uh, my good friend Ancient's timeline and just scroll down uh, because uh, I don't know of anyone who has a better understanding of philology uh, than Ancient. But that's, that's, in other words, the words that we use constitute a kind of amber in which fossils are preserved. And we could think of those fossils that are preserved as our thoughts or something like that. And so Heidegger wants to take us back to the most primordial stage of those words in order to better understand them. Hence his word, the origin of the work of art. And it's not just the origin of art, but the work of art. So th that's, again, going to be key is that, again, there's, there's, something, there's something more primordial than just this thing we call art because Heidegger wants to get us to what we even mean by art. And in order to do that, of course, he's going to become heavily dependent upon words. And he's going to go all the way back to this word techne in Greek, which is the word we get for the the English word art. It's also half of the word technology. So you see there that technology is very much alive and well in this question about art for Heidegger. And you, it's diff you can't understand art in its form of the word techne without understanding its correlate in Greek philosophy, which was nature or phusis. And so Heidegger is going to take us to Fusus as well. But what's, what's most important for Heidegger of what he does, and you see this with this circle that he's introduced, this kind of circular thinking. He even goes so far as to say that uh, so long as we're in this pattern of circular thinking, we're on the right trail because there's a kind of tension that's always going to be going on. What, what Heidegger is wanting us to do is understand the ways in which the human being himself even thinks. And that is going to have a profound impact on what at least he's going to tell us art itself really means. Now, I don't want to get too far into this because we can really get bogged down in, in, in the weeds very quickly. Um, and I don't want to be too superficial about this, but like I said, you know, we'll, uh, certainly Alejandro and I are going to be doing spaces on this astral as well. Uh, in conjunction with a lot of the work that, that we're doing as well. I mean, so many ways to, to get a grip on this. But what it's going to come down to for, for Heidegger, is, and, and this is where this word thing comes into play, because he's also, uh, Heidegger having, well, just being a great mind, has his mind on many things. He's also recently publishing a very a big work or giving a long lecture series on Kant, and the meaning of thing in Kant, the thing in itself is what is the crucial word right there. Uh, and what Kant is going to do is come up with this universal object, what it means for there to be an abstract something there. That's new under the sun, certainly in philosophy and certainly to man. We so casually speak about things called objects. We say, oh, it's that object over there that didn't exist prior to Kant. I mean, there were various words, but they always carried a multivalent 
understanding of things. For instance, if you go all the way back to Greek, there's the word pragma, uh, which Socrates, for instance, says, you know, what is your thing, Socrates? What is your business? And pragma can, can mean a whole host of things. But for us in English and the Western world in general, object is very unique. It means something and possibly all things, but nothing, right? It's this abstraction of something. And so Heidegger is going to take us into what we understand as a thing, right? Because, again, he's trying to get us to focus on what we mean by art. So you've got to talk about what things are. And by talking about what things are in general, he's able to show how it is that when we think of these things we call objects, that's how we get into this realm of so-called objectivity, right? That's another thing that Kant gives us that's new under the sun. The fact that you can somehow think of things completely disconnected from them. And Heidegger is going to find that very problematic. That's how he's going to also in this essay bring up this understanding of moods and how it is that we think of being, for instance, enraptured or somehow, as for instance, as Astro was talking about, being under the spell of the muse. Well, that's a mood. Uh, and Heidegger is going to associate that with a more primordial way of thinking about things. And so instead of this, we could think of, to use the imagery of Nietzsche as the, when he says the state is the coldest of all cold things. In other words, uh, passionless, right? Pure objectivity. Heidegger is going to force us to get back to a way of thinking in which we have a very strong passion connected to this, whatever it is that we're talking about. And that's going to be so very crucial because for Heidegger, this understanding of nature or phusis that gets at the core of what we mean when we say a particular thing is that it has been wrong entirely in the history of Western philosophy. He's going to say we went wrong, and he's following Nietzsche, by the way, Nietzsche's critique of Socrates here. He's going to say what we get wrong is to, is to realize or to falsely believe that we are the ones who are looking at the things objectively. And the translator in the volume uses points out that the word is gestell. And just a little bit of German here, the verb stellen is, means to place something, right? To, to put something somewhere, uh, one of its meanings. And generally speaking, when you have the G in front of something, the G-E, it, it usually means in the past tense. So gestell is going to mean essentially something that is placed, or in other words, framed. And so that's why you have this emphasis, for instance, in the technology essay, but it's also very much alive and well here, of so-called inframing or standing reserve, gestell. It means that something's already been placed. And so what Heidegger is saying is that when we're looking at things, particularly like when we look at art, he's going to use the imagery of looking at a picture, we are, we are automatically mistaken in believing that that thing has, has already by default been placed there. He's going to turn that around entirely and say, no, what's happening is that it is erupting or coming, showing forth through you, right? That's going to be some, this sort of new uh, revelation, but I see that Alejandro threw his hand up. So it's possibly, I, it's possible I got something wrong there. Uh, like I said, I had two doses of my pre-workout uh, today because it was legs. And so 
I might as well not even have rushed home from the gym to prep because I couldn't focus whatsoever. Uh, so, so, so I'll just leave it there for a moment. Well, yeah. Okay. So this is all very important for the essay, the origin of the work of art. And we need to elaborate on this. Uh, Alejandro, I'll let you interject quickly. And then I'd like to, um, yeah, I'd like to elaborate on what Athenia said. This wasn't so much a direct response to Athenia, and I wanted to say something about what you were saying earlier about the divine astral. So you tell me if this is the right moment or not. Uh, yeah, go ahead, because I was going to basically piggyback off Athenian to sort of try to incorporate what he said into what I said to, to show how it basically was arguing, arguing my position. Uh, so, so go ahead. All right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of the divine. And there's a there's a passage in the essay. So just to review for people that haven't read it, there's three main examples of the artwork that he gives. And it's uh, Van Gogh's painting of the peasant shoes. There's a poem about a Roman fountain. And then the third one and possibly the most significant one is a Greek temple. And he, he, he continues to return to the Greek temple because that is the one where he says, well, he doesn't so much say it, but he implies it doesn't represent anything. We can't connect the temple back to something which it would be a picture of or a representation of. And so I wanted to read a brief passage from the essay where he talks about the significance of this. Um, <clears throat> He, he's talking about this in terms of the, the notion of setting up. Setting up no longer mere, means merely putting in place. To dedicate means to consecrate in the sense that in the workly construction, the holy is opened up as the holy and the God is called forth in the openness of its presence. Praise belongs to dedication as doing honor to the dignity and splendor of the God. Dignity and splendor are not properties beside and behind which there stands additionally the God, rather it is in the dignity and the splendor that the God comes to presence. And uh, this is a notion I've been looking at and thinking about a lot, that uh, there, is a, there is a kind of, uh, there is something in Heidegger that both pushes for, you could say, religion as religion, religion and there's something also, I think, that pushes against it and tries to ask, what is the broader, if you want to put it this way, existential backdrop? What is it about our experience such that anything like a religion can take place? And I think one of the names he gives it <clears throat> is the holy. And um, I'll just read one line from an essay I found really useful here by Har and, uh, and, and finish. He says, um, for Heidegger, without a preludial holy, conceived as the spared or the wholesome or that which has the power to save no god can appear and so here the temple makes possible the appearance of the god it's not so much like we have to think about the religious tradition in the primary spot <clears throat> and the temple as one of the let's say architectural manifestations of the tradition but exactly the other way around and and so it's the temple that reveals the holy and it's within the holy that the god can appear 
this, it seems to me, is, I mean, if we're going to go back, and I'll just go fast here, to the question of overcoming nihilism, it is this idea that there is a, a kind of holiness that is always available so long as something like a work of art is available. But that does not correspond to the God of any specific tradition from Heidegger's point of view, right? Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's like pick any God you like. It's rather that um, any tradition has a kind of notion of the holy, which is manifest through its, 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 its well, it's manifest through its manifest works. Well, here's the, here's the problem with that. And Heidegger talks about this repeatedly in the Der Spiegel interview. The problem with that is that the God in the temple is a very local God. He is dependent upon that locality. He is the God worshipped by the people who live there. And the problem with modernity and technological society is that there's a continual uprooting happening. There's a continual disembodiment of people from the earth and they're being extracted from their world. Now, this is a Heideggerian term. The world is basically the earth upon which you dwell, that you care about, that the tree that you walk by isn't just uh, it, it isn't just a tree in a landscape. It's the tree whose leaves rustle in the breeze in the evening as the sun goes down as you're walking home from a, a hard day of toil in the field. So the tree has that meaning for you. So so the shoes in Van Gogh's uh, peasant shoes painting evokes that world, which is wholly dependent upon locality, is wholly dependent on that place. And uh, if you don't, if, if, if you don't exist or dwell in a place like that in which the surrounding nature or the surrounding village, the surrounding culture means the same thing to all the people who live there with you, then therefore the work of art can't have that meaning for you. So if you and he and, you know, Heidegger gets into this, if you take a piece of art that is uh, indicative of that world of that of that experience that life that those people live that is that is rooted in the earth in that location in that distinct location and and you and you package it and you travel it around the world it 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 disembodies the work of art it uproots the work of art it displaces the work of art from that life from that experience from that culture and sort of puts it on display and turns it into this object of contemplation that I was talking about. Now, I'm really glad you read that passage about the temple. Uh, this essay definitely has Heidegger's most beautiful prose and his most beautiful writing in it, for sure. And uh, his best writing I've ever read is probably about the temple and about the, peasant, the painting of the peasant shoes. And what you said is the splendor of the temple calls forth the divine it it kind of brings the divine out of the the matter the object that is there and brings it forth it it unconceals it 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 brings you into the presence uh of 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 that being so when i said so it's not a contemplative act so when i was talking about hegel how i was saying hegel hegel's insight is that uh the understanding and the contemplation of the work of art supersedes the 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 experience with the work of art the intellectualization of it it's not simply 
that you go there and um, you intellectualize the statue. You go look at the statue and you think to yourself, this is a statue of Apollo or Dionysus or Aphrodite. And the goddess Aphrodite represents X, Y, and Z, and it has such and such a meaning. No one does that. They don't, no, no religious uh, devotee or no, no worshiper goes to the temple and has that experience. Okay. Uh, because that's not what that object is for at all. However, the act of self-reflection is something you participate in. It's something that you do. It's an activity that you use your mind to participate, to, to partake in. <coughs> but according to Hegel, the work of art is itself the embodiment of reflection. It's the embodiment of self-reflection. So if someone is painting a landscape or sculpting, uh, sculpting uh, a dying Gaul, sculpting a warrior, or sculpting uh, the emperor of Rome, or they're um, painting a scene, they're depicting a scene from mythology, right? Or they're depicting a landscape. It is itself an object of reflection. So it's already once removed from the experience. The work of art is itself a reflection, okay? It's not merely the, the, the person encountering the work of art having the experience of self-reflection. It is uh, the personification of reflection. It's reflecting on the myth. It's reflecting, it's a reflection, it's a reference to something else. It's a reference to something real or something that exists within the 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 capacity or, or within the the reality of the human mind so a myth a story right where does a myth exist the myth exists in a collective mind of the culture that uh, is shaped by that myth that's where that myth lives so the mind or geist as hegel says spirit is itself its own plateau its own vista its own dimension of reality. And within that dimension of reality, the myth, uh, the myth resides. Okay. And then the myth is communicated to us through the spoken word or through the written word. Okay. So if you have a painting of a myth, you have Botticelli's uh, birth of Venus, or you have uh, a painting of, of, of all these different Greek myths, that is itself a reflection brought outside of that, out of that dimension it's something that is outside it's not a living myth anymore okay it's an object in the world it's a piece of material object in the world that is a reflection of something that resides elsewhere okay so heidegger says and 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 athenian was talking about this now i i need to i need to elaborate some of these things because i made a lot of claims in the beginning about the importance of the work of art that are were not, that were baseless without elaborating on this essay so athenian said that uh the the essence or the nature of the observer of the artwork and the artwork itself changes when someone is interacting with it so heidegger says in the uh question concerning technology essay that uh when you have a chalice a silver chalice uh it's one thing and you can say it's shaped like this and it's uh, this is what it feels like and this is what it sounds like when you ping it with something and this is this is its use value. Right. <clears throat> and you say that per a person who lives elsewhere who's not present right now made it. 
Okay, he crafted it. But when that inert object is being used in a religious ritual, it takes on all these new properties. Okay, and these new properties that it takes on are not reducible to its physical properties. Okay, so if you have a work of art and you you wrap it in 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 some sort of protective layering, and you stack it up with other works of art, you have a painting, and you put them in a crate. And you, and you put them in a truck and no one's looking at them and you ship them to a museum. They're, according to Heidegger, they're just equipment. They're not a work of art at that moment. All right, just like that chalice is not, uh, it's not uh, a piece of the divine. And the artist who crafted that chalice is not uh, uh, an artist except when he's making it or after the fact that he's already made it. Just like the religious devotee who's observing that chalice is not, is not using the chalice. Uh, he's not uh, interacting with the chalice and communicating with the divine unless he participates in that religious ritual. So in that sense, the work of art is not something higher unless it's being interacted with by an individual. And that individual is not participating in something beyond himself He's not experiencing the sublime if he's thinking about the painting or if he's uh, if he's, you know, scrolling on his phone and, and scrolls by it. But if you're there in person with the work of art and you're dwelling with it, this is a Heideggerian term, you're dwelling with it. It then reveals the higher truth to, to you and connects you to that higher truth. And what is that higher truth? Well, it could be a number of things, but uh, for our purposes, we'll just stick with what Heidegger says, which is uh, uh, it connects you to this, the world of the peasant who wears those shoes. And it connects you to, it's a reference to, uh, it gestures towards this higher reality that is beyond you in the gallery interacting with the painting. The problem in a nihilistic age, in a, in a technological age, is like when you go look at that painting of the shoes, it's not like connecting you to anything that you've ever done in your life. This is the problem. This is the problem. This is what needs to be overcome. If you lived in that peasant village while that peasant woman was still alive, you are having this shared collective experience. You are participating in the living culture that you are a part of. So it connects you to this higher thing. But if you're looking at it from 150 years ago, 200 years ago, from a country you've never been in, to people who have been dead for generations, it is <coughs> merely a, 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 an object of fetishization. I'm sorry to say that because I, I, I don't mean to reduce it. It is merely an object for contemplation to, to think about, to analyze, to critique, and to look back on. So in order to have a living tradition and a living culture, you need to make a work of art that embodies all of these things for you now. And the problem is, is you have to ask, what does that piece of art look like? What do we make now? What do we do? So uh, quickly, let me just say this to, to get back to Heidegger for a second, where he goes through different objects that humans use and he uh he uh meticulously details the way in which we interact with them 
And the reason why he does this is he wants to differentiate the work of art from any other object. Because if you have a hammer in a truck with no human being in it and it's dark and no one can see it, nobody can interact with it, next to a painting, right? Those two inert objects have a potential value, okay? You open up the truck, you shine light upon it, you see it, you pick up the hammer. All of a sudden, now it's in your hand. uh, It's got this uh, kinetic energy and it can be used to do something. If you then go and hammer something with that hammer, you've exhausted you've exhausted the properties of the hammer. It can't be anything else anymore. It it it's 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 uh, being has been uh, completely uh, achieved. It's been completely accomplished at that point. It does not exist beyond or gestures towards something beyond its use value. A painting can do that in all the ways that I've been talking about. But but in, a, in an age of mechanical reproduction, in a nihilistic, materialistic age, if you have a, a poster or if you have mass-produced art and you use it to adorn your house, like I was saying before, you have exhausted its properties. You have completely fulfilled its essence and its being as a commodity, as something that beautifies your dwelling space, as something that adorns your living space, uh, as something that you look at and get relaxation from uh, after a hard day of work. And it has no use value beyond that. So the work of art has to be something that is not exhausted when its properties uh, are understood. Like, like uh, this is why I was talking about the chalice. Okay. When you understand the properties of the chalice and you use the chalice in the ritual, you have not exhausted its essence. You have not, you have not reached the, the terminal point of its reason for being. You have, in fact, opened up this whole new world of divinity by connecting yourself to it. So for the work of art to be an object of something that can overcome nihilism, it has to then uh, connect you to this higher thing that when you put it to use, you don't exhaust its properties, uh, you open up a new vista. So what what items, and, and this is what I was saying before, uh, Younger and, and Heidegger were saying that it gestures towards a god. It gestures towards something beyond the material, something beyond the human, something beyond the individual. What can do that? Can a painting do that now? I don't know if it can. I don't think it can. I think, here's the other problem with art, and this goes back to what I was saying before when I brought up Hegel. Art as a movement or as an era or as a form of expression. Now, now Hegel says this, and it's in the origin of the work of art essay. If it has, if it's expressing something, okay, because the, the temple, the, the God and the, the objects of the ritual, they are not expressing something. They are participating in something. The painting of the myth, the painting uh, of a human that exists in the world, a portrait, uh, it is expressing something. It is gesturing towards something material. <coughs> but uh, I lost my train of thought for a second. The the um, so so the problem is is that there comes a point 
and it takes this takes millennia to to play out. This takes this takes a thousand years to play out. There comes a point where, and and you know, I like to use the example of expressionism, but it's it's not the only example. Uh, the expressionists often depicted day to day scenes of Paris. They're just painting what's happening around them. Okay, they're they're painting the people they're encountering. They're painting the mundane, normal, everyday people's street scenes that are happening around them. This is something that happens at the end of a process, as that as a process is winding down, where it was a an an, an object that participated in the rit- religious ritual, and then it became an object that reflected upon or gestured towards the religious ritual, uh, and then it became a reflection of mundane, mundane day-to-day life. And then once you pass through that, what else is there to express? That's the question. What is there to express? When you get to a point where art is simply expressing the same thing over and over and over again, rotely expressing the same thing over and over and over again, you have gotten to a point where it's gotten itself into a, a feedback loop. And it's no longer gesturing to something higher. It's just like a hamster on a spinning wheel repeating the same thing over and over and over again. So my point being that uh, if you were today to go out like an expressionist, uh, I, I, I love expressionism. I think their paintings are beautiful. I'm not trying to say they are themselves decadent or not as good as the Renaissance painters by any stretch of the imagination. Rather, what I'm saying is that they're, they come at the end of a long tradition that basically exhausts itself with them. And that's why we get into abstract expressionism, because they didn't want to keep painting the same stuff over and over again with the same forms. You can only depict the human form so many ways. And if you don't want to make it abstract or aberrant, you have to basically depict it the way hundreds of other painters have depicted it for hundreds of years. There's no higher way to express, to draw, to paint the human form. So we can't get out of nihilism. We can't use the work of art as something to transcend our fallen state by having people going out and painting scenes of, uh, of, of New York City or London or Paris or any other of the world's cities, because it could be any city. That's the problem. It could be any city. This uh, groundedness, this embeddedness in this world that Heidegger talked about that's gone now because we live in the megalopolitan era where all of the cities reflect the same architecture. It's not localism. It's not embedded in the tradition of that locality. It's, it's this world city. It's this world culture. Therefore, the art can't connect you to anything higher if that's all you're depicting. Okay. <clears throat> So I don't know. I don't know where painting can go. I don't really know where painting can go. Literature, I like to think literature can still, you could still write a novel that hundreds of thousands of people can read and it can, it can sort of uh, imbue them with the same sense of this experience that they're having, that all the other people who've read that book know that they, that they're sharing that, that experience. The problem is in a nihilistic age, it's so solipsistic the things that were that are being published now are like identity politics and uh, uh, the memoir. Everybody has to publish a memoir. You know, memoirs were on fire for like 20 years. And it's just this individual's 
personal experience and their personal reflection, which is not gestured towards anything higher. It, 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 it's, it's, it's referential only to that, that artist's ego, right? So it is itself an endeavor in nihilism. So if we ask the question, what, what does the work of art look like? I don't know for sure, but basically what Heidegger says is you have to make art. We have to make art and offer it to God. And we have to continually make art until this God reveals himself. Once the God reveals himself and we have this new religion, he will then imbue the art itself and inspire the artist to, to make the art for him or for it in that way. And it will then become this new uh, sacred object. The problem is, the problem is, is that in the age of, you know, technology, it, it subsumes, and, and this gets into, I mean, we're going to have to probably do another episode on this now. Because the problem with the age of technology is it subsumes and consumes and it phagocytizes. When a, when a, when a, when a white blood cell phagocytizes a, an invading cell, it like morphs itself around this, the, the bacteria or the virus like a blob. And it totally like sucks it into itself and breaks it down and it incorporates it into itself and it excretes you know, the pieces it can't metabolize it as waste matter. This is what technology does to creativity, okay? Because it takes the creative person, it takes the artist, and it sucks them up into this vortex of, like, <clears throat> commercial endeavors that can make them all this money. So they're using their life force, they're using all this energy and this creative power that they have. Instead of, like, making this divine piece of art that their culture can participate in, they're, like, making fucking video games, or they're making television commercials, or they're making, uh, you know, commercial movies or something like that, which are which are made only to generate a profit and not to express something. So the problem is, is that like that's going to divert a lot of the creative attention, a lot of the creative energy that could have been used to distill, to hone and distill a craft into this timeless masterpiece like the Pieta or something like that. Instead, you have this person, you know, working for a, a video game, uh, putting all their creative energy into, into making a video game or something like that. So the artist has to suffer. We have to agonize over, like, what's the art going to look like? What can we do to, like, make a piece of art that is going to transcend all of these problems, right? And then the artist themselves, the problem with all this is that the artist themselves has to suffer in obscurity and has to suffer to be unappreciated and has to suffer to not get paid for it. They need an audience to participate in this, like to make it worth it for them to keep doing it. You know, Winkleman talks about this and he was writing in the 1700s and he was saying that like, you can't have a guy who goes to his job, a guy who spends, you know, his, his prime years as a college student and then gets out and goes and gets a job and spends every day working and has a family he is not going to sit there with a raw piece of marble that he and some of his uh, helpers, you know, cut out of a quarry and drag back to the studio. And that he spends hours by himself meticulously carving into, you know, a great masterpiece. People just aren't going to do that. They need a patron, right? They need a patron to pay them. Well, you know, what do patrons pay people do now? They pay them for sycophancy. 
And that's what they used to do. This is part of how the transition happened. This is part of how the decline happened that I was talking about. Because the church used to pay the artist to turn this raw piece of marble into a divine statue or to paint this, the, the cathedral ceiling with this like huge tapestry that they then preserve and it expresses their religion and it, and it, and it dwells in a place of worship. But then you, you, you get later, you get uh, more civilizational development, people get wealthier. They then start to pay these artists to paint pictures of themselves, to make portraits of themselves and sculptures of themselves and their, their mistresses. And then when you get, I know Athenian likes to talk about the academy and education, when you get even later, you start, instead of having these wealthy patrons who pay these people to basically live in their house. I mean, I mentioned Winkleman. Winkleman was paid to live in like a Duke's library and administer the library and study Greek and Roman art for like 10 years. Okay. So you then, as a result of that, you have like the first great historical uh, art, artistic critic, right? And he got, he got hired by the Vatican. But then you have these guys paying a resident artist, basically like paint pictures of their manor house because they're like these great tycoons, these great imperial barons, paint pictures of their manor house and paint pictures of the statues that they own and paint pictures of themselves and their wife and have uh, wealthy visitors come and stroll the grounds and look at the painting that they paid for. But that still created great art, right? The problem is now, uh, you know, people they start to get so solipsistic and they start to get so narcissistic that like you have wealthy patrons like Elon Musk, who like puts all these people on, uh, on blast, like this guy, Mario and, uh, Ian Michaels Chung, these guys are, and these guys are being paid and they have huge followers and lots of people pay attention to them. All they do is like stroke Elon Musk's ego. This is pure sycophancy. You're not going to get a great historic piece of art out of something like that. The other thing that happens when I, I, I got sidetracked, uh, when I talked about the transition Hegel was talking about that begins the decline of art and you go from the church paying people to paint things and then you go to wealthy barons paying people, you then have like regular everyday merchants and accountants who make enough money to send their kids to school, right? And you have hundreds of thousands of people going to college to learn the same technique and the same skill to, on how to paint. And then they go out and they just start painting all the things around them and they start painting their life. Now, this is good. This is I'm not complaining about this. I'm not saying that that can't make good historic art. But as this process continues over the ages and eons pass while this goes on, you eventually end up where we are now, where like you don't even have what I just said. You literally just have like a computer where you can click a button and the art gets mailed to your house or it shows up on your computer screen and it's nothing beyond that. So in order to transcend that, right, <laughs> you have to have people who basically fucking eat shit for their whole life and who suffer. And uh, you have to ask, is great art possible when nobody wants to do that? I guess... You know, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I hope that I hope that it is. I think that it is. We have to do it. We have to like patronize these people. We have to find these people who are doing this and like give them attention and praise them and buy their work. Uh, and if they do something that sucks, you have to tell them it sucks. Um, so we have people doing it now. We have people writing novels. We have people making paintings and sculptures. Uh, even even just guys that hang out here, uh, Fen. 
uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Fen, who's the sculptor, Matthew the Stoat, who's a painter. Uh, we have all sorts of artists coming around here who are hanging out here. And if they don't, like, catch any traction, you know, if these people, if these novels don't get traction, if we don't do it ourselves, the dominant culture that's, like, in control of everything, the Leviathan, they're just going to exacerbate the problem more. They're just going to make things worse. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'll say, the last thing I'll say is I said earlier, and I said that Younger says this, that religion is not the answer. Religion, it can be a readout for you, but it can't save your culture. Just look at the state of uh, factionalism. I mean, ever since, really, the Protestant Re Reformation. I mean, people were going to war over this stuff. And it's just been fractalizing more and more and more and more and more since then. So I don't think you can have uh, one of these traditional religions capture enough people to reorient them around this, you know, shared God and worship the same God that they conceptualize in the same way and in the same way as things continue to be fractalized. fractalized. Rather, what you have is, and this is, Younger talks about this, this is what nihilism does to religion. Instead of having people rally around this stuff and worshiping and venerating together in the same way, you have them arguing. You have them arguing about what the right way to worship is and what the right way to be this religion is. You have them you have them, you constantly have the pernicious invasion of the morality of the day, uh, chipping away at it. Art is impervious to that. Art is impervious to that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's that. I could go on. But uh, Athenian or Alejandro, I'm, I'm very interested in what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got, I've got a, quite a bit I can add, but my dog, for some reason, Nelson is being more anxiety ridden tonight. I think because we've got a monsoon hanging over us right now. Uh, and plus when you combine the fact that I'm talking in spaces, he, he starts to just go crazy. Um, well, the, the first thing though that comes to mind that, that would be, that would be helpful immediately for, for the discussion at hand is that for Heidegger, one of the primary reasons that it's going to be so difficult to overcome nihilism, whatever that means and I, and I would simply add uh, that he, in fact, has an essay titled Overcoming Nihilism. So, so it's helpful if uh, people want to go there. Just keep in mind, anyone listening, that Heidegger wrote an enormous amount. And many, many of his lectures themselves were translated and then published. So, so if, you, if, you, if you look into the Heidegger, I guess we could say canon or something like that, or his his oeuvre, um, there's an enormous amount. So again, you're sort of dealing with a top notch philosopher. And so you, you could always cross paths with people who specialize only in Heidegger and they'll start to constantly quibble with you because he's one of the latest of these great philosophers. And, and it's always whatever is latest is greatest that a lot of people will specialize in. But for Heidegger, one of the greatest problems with all this is he's effectively going to say, and I, I have to double check to see if he explicitly says it. I think he does. I've got it. I've got it pinned in one of the essays I found uh, that he, that he writes that technology itself 
is nihilism. That that's the problem is that this this thinking of constant change, of constant innovation, and the way in which people have turned the understanding of what we would otherwise think of as things into objects of utility. And then on top of that, you have compounded it with this understanding of politics, particularly in modernity, of what we think of as liberalism, classical liberalism, which is to say enlightened self-interest. And let's emphasize the self-interest part. It's whether it's enlightened or not, we can hang a question mark over that. But the point is that it's all about contractual kind of self-interest, self-preservation, comfortability in this world on top of this ceaseless invention of technological man. And you're just not able to. To break free from it, I mean that that that's going to be the problem. Is that you've you've got to find a way to get out of that. But but the incentives, I mean, even our language incentives echoes the self-interestness at, at afoot. But even that's problematic. And so this this overcoming of nihilism can be restated for Heidegger as overcoming technology. And in that phrasing it that way, you immediately see, holy shit, this is a big enterprise. How the fuck are you going to overcome technology, right? Um, and that's why, on the one hand, uh, Heidegger says, sort of tongue in cheek, that we simply have to wait for new gods. Uh, and he doesn't he doesn't believe in these new gods or anything. In other words, he's he's more or less saying that uh, we just got to wait for it all to collapse and, and come down, um, and then hopefully move on from there. But but this primordial kind of thinking that he's wanting to return us back to in this reversing of thinking of things in terms of so-called objectivity and rather instead of how it is that they uh, emerge or erupt from within us by way of moods and such that's going to lead him in this essay to to bring up what you guys have been mentioning already is this distinction between on the one hand world this thing called world and then what he goes out of his way to emphasize as earth because one thing that uh, is going to happen in Heidegger's thinking right around this same time period is he's going to take a, what's often referred to as the turn in his thinking towards the so-called fourfold. And the fourfold is going to be what we might otherwise think of as a kind of return to the gods of the Titans, which is to say earth, sky, um, and et cetera, et cetera, right? The, these, these fundamental primordial aspects of man, the to say earth, sky, man, and the divine. Uh, but when you think of it in that kind of constellation of the four things, it's they're really all sort of the same in that regard. But but that those are those are just some of the, the firsthand comments uh, that, that I would make about uh, some of these things. Oh, this, no, that was very important. And I'm glad you said that because it's able to bring me to the next portion of what I was saying. Because I was talking about, and, and Athenian, I know you have, I know you have something to say on this. I look forward to it because uh, you've read this little red essay by, I think it was Henry Adams called The Virgin and the Dynamo. This is very important to what we're talking about because up until now, you know, I've been talking about the pernicious effect nihilism has on the work of art and, and on all culture, really. But um, 
this pernicious effect is brought about specifically by technology and specifically by inframing, which is what Heidegger says is the essence of technology. And Heidegger says when you live in an era of technicity or in a technological era, you are expressing the essence of technology. You are not expressing the essence of being, which is, which is your essence, the human being, <clears throat> and the higher, the higher being that we are all a part of, right? So he basically says, one of the things about Heidegger uh, is that he basically says that there was like a, an error or a mistake in understanding that came about basically during the Greek Enlightenment, and that Western civilization is basically not <laughs> understood its essence as human beings or as humanity since then. And he says in the origin of the work of art that basically you have, uh, uh, and this is my paraphrase. He doesn't phrase it this way exactly. But basically in the Greek time, you had uh, the foundation. You had the foundation of being that was established in in, in Greece. Language is very important to this, but... uh, He talks about the importance of language. We're going to leave that aside for tonight. But he makes an argument using, you know, Greek language, why the foundation of being existed then. Right. So we're going to we're going to say like being towards the foundation of humanity. And then in the medieval era, it was being towards God. God sort of oriented everything everyone did. And now in the technological era, it's being towards in framing. And what he's saying, <clears throat> what he means is that the essence we express is the essence of God or the essence of technology. So what that means is that in the medieval Christian era, right, the Christian metaphysic of art at the time is that matter was just inert matter in and of itself, but it was brought to life. It was animated by the higher reality of God. Part of him imbued uh, himself with these things. So the, these objects took on this like living essence of God in those times. And you can use a myriad number of examples to show how this actually played itself out in the lives of these people as a real thing. Two examples I like to use is there was a time... I think this was in like the 8th or 9th century AD. Uh, Constantinople was uh, under siege. And then uh, flash forward to 1100 where uh, the Crusaders uh, invade Jerusalem. In both instances, they were losing. The Christians were losing the battle. Constantinople was being overwhelmed and the Crusaders were, were, were not going to take Jerusalem. In the battle at Constantinople, I can't remember the name of this battle. If anybody knows it, though, you can you can jump in. They hung a picture of the Virgin Mary uh, over the walls, and they paraded it around on top of the walls for all the soldiers to see. And they rallied around that, and they fought with new vigor. They were reinvigorated by this, uh, and they won the battle. Uh, in Jerusalem, they found a, a metal rod that they said was the spear that pierced the, 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 the side of Christ on the cross. And they brought that out. A bishop or a priest brought that out and he held it up to the soldiers and they were reinvigorated and they fought with new uh, vitality and they won the battle. So these religious objects had uh, this strong, invigorating, animating uh, meaning for them. And this went on for hundreds of years. 
according to Henry Adams in the Virgin of the Dynamo and the Dynamo, you know, the Virgin or God or Christ or any religious figure, any any divine figure, uh, imbued or invigorated these people to create these objects of veneration or these objects of worship. And he goes through, this is what I was talking about before, with like how much an artist has to suffer to make his craft. It, you know, we think about, we have this like uh, bullshit stereotype that's perpetuated by the Academy that, you know, the medieval people lived this hard scrabble life uh, and they were just eking out an existence, living on boiled cabbages and boiled bone, bone marrow. Uh, and they were starving all the time. <coughs> well, if that was the case, how did these medieval villages do things uh, like like uh, build these huge vaulted cathedrals, which took massive amounts of coordination? It took massive amounts of manpower. You had to have these people. You had to have specialization. You can only have specialization like this if you have a certain amount of uh, cultural and economic development. And these people who like live their normal workaday lives would then find the energy on top of that to go build this cathedral so that they had a place to go and worship God and go and venerate their God. The building of the cathedral was itself a form of veneration. And the toil that it took to make this was part of that experience. That piece of art that they made, that toil that they uh, put into it is like now baked in to that object that they see that is in their town where they live. Right. And it's and that toil was inspired by the God that that cathedral was built to venerate. Henry Adams's argument is that when you have the dynamo, which is the internal combustion engine, and you have the ability to have like manufactured uh, mass production of these things and all these things can be built with uh, with technology and and less human labor and less human toil, it's going to like knock out that uh that veneration it's going to extinguish the animating flame that invigorates people to go and do these things and to like risk their lives in the cases of the of of, of the invasion or the in, in the cases of the the crusaders i mean they were literally dying for these objects of worship uh the crusades they were dying to take back a sacred place that meant so much to them that they that they traveled over land a thousand miles to go back and reclaim these Christian churches because that's what that stuff meant to them. Now, if you can mass produce these things and give them to anybody who go works a normal job, uh, it's going to like extinguish that flame. So this is what Heidegger means when he says that the essence of technology is in framing. It covers up the essence of human beings and it, it reveals the essence of technology. So, that, so now that humans... Uh, who are spending their life force instead of expressing themselves and expressing their veneration for God, they're laying back and becoming fat and lazy and they're just having these things handed to them and they're not imbued with any of this higher meaning. They're not imbued with any of this higher purpose. They're totally inert objects of matter that were created by technology. So now, instead of putting your energy into creating this art to venerate your God, you're putting this energy into running the system that keeps the technology up and going. Now, I know, I know Athenian can pick this up because he talks about this, because he says, you know, when, when me and him have talked about this, this is like our fifth episode together. So you have to go back and listen to all of our episodes. We talk about all this. That 
a nihilistic endeavor, like I was talking about before, where you're just like rotely repeating the same thing over and over again, your civilization now exists purely to keep the engine of technology churning, to keep popping these things out for no real reason. These things don't take on this sacred uh, light anymore. So they're being pumped out for, for nothing. Therefore, if the product of this endeavor is nothingness, it's a throwaway good, that means the process itself is the reason why it's happening. The running and the, the accumulation and the continued churning of technology is itself the purpose of this activity. Therefore, humans are existing for technology. <laughs> We're... I mean, I, I feel like I'm painting a very bleak picture, but this is what we have to overcome. This is why we have to make a piece of art that gestures to the future, that gestures towards God, that, that, that connects us to something. It takes us out of this feedback loop. It takes us out of this process and distills us into this other plane of existence that doesn't feed the machine. I don't know what else can do that. I mean, I mean, your personal experience with God can do that. But clearly, clearly religion has not stopped any of this from happening. Clearly religion has just been like fed into the fucking meat grinder uh, of modernity. Um, so if you get 500 Americans and you give them a religious ritual or you give them a prayer, I guarantee you you're going to have 500 people saying, why would I do this? This doesn't make sense. Or they're going to say, this isn't how that prayer is supposed to go. Or this isn't how this ritual is supposed to go. You're supposed to do it this way. But if you take those same 500 people and you put them in front of a transcendent piece of art, I guarantee you that you will like hold them all in rapture and, and, and they will all have that same collected shared experience. This is why things like film and literature uh, matter. This is why things like watching a movie and having a lot of people talking about it and talking about the ideas has the potential to be something greater than just a commercial product. And this is why if you're a traditionalist or if you're right wing and you reject uh, this trash world, this is why you have to make this stuff. Because this is how your ideas and your perception and your perspective gets insinuated into the culture is by making a piece of art that like questions or challenges the status quo, tears down the sacred cows, doesn't give a fuck about convention, says fuck you to what like they want you to say or think or express or do. And it, 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 it opens up a new pathway. This is the forest passage that Junger was talking about. In the forest passage, he talks about how, like, the forest dweller is somebody like me and you and the listener who exists in the forest, who is aware that everything is wrong and that everything is fucked up. But they know if they walk into their job tomorrow and say, like, uh, you know, everything is wrong, and, uh, uh, feminism, liberalism, LGBTQ, all this is wrong, you're going to get fired. You're going to get shut down. You're not, it's not going to work. So you have to you have to be quiet. You have to keep it to yourself. And then when the time is right, 
you know, Younger says, all of these people will roar forth like a lion from the forest and be this cultural force that can actually make a change. My argument, and I think Heidegger and Younger's argument, is that the only thing that can draw these people out and make them come together and collectivize around this thing, these ideas, is uh, an irreverent piece of art that they can all put their petty differences aside and agree upon. Um, you know, and this can look like a painting. This can look like a book. This can look like a movie. But, uh, but people have to do it. And people have to remember. This is the last thing I'll say right now. People have to remember that these aren't stupid, silly things. These movies and these books, they're not stupid, silly objects of, of consumer objects commercial objects that are, are that are low they, they have the potential to be something higher to like rally us around like a new mode of being and a new form of thought so we have to start taking these things seriously and you do that by doing what we're doing here talking about these things together interpreting these things together looking uh, finding the message within these things that like expresses your perception of the world but you also have to like support people who make these things uh, and you have to make them yourself and you have to uh, you have to share them. You know, you have to participate and not I mean, you know, when we open this up to uh, discussion, tell me who's doing it. Where is this stuff happening? Because I can't really think of anything besides like Passage Press, Man's World. Babs podcast, Athenian Strangers website. You know, I like to think my podcast it plays a role. These all seem like stupid things, right? These all seem like just another podcast. They all seem like just another dissident publishing company. They all seem like just another movie in this in a sea of a million things. But we have to like hold on to it, and we have to like uh, tease it out because the more exposure it gets, right, the more minds it changes. And this is not uh, petty. Art, art movements change culture in major ways, and they always have. They always have. There's no reason to think that it can't happen again. There's no reason to think that what we're participating in here now can't change the culture. Or at the very least, at the very least, what it can do is carve out a new subculture within which we can all participate and find this, like, fulfillment that who knows what it can go on to do, you know? I don't know what it can go on to do. But Heidegger, Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, all of these thinkers, all of these thinkers tell you that if you don't see the results, if it doesn't change the world now, you still have to do it. You still have to do it anyway. <laughs> and I guess that's all I have to say tonight. Um, if 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 you you think it's all coming to nothing, you still have to do it anyway. Go ahead, Ethereum. Yeah, I think that's Alejandro that's uh, that's wanted to chime in there. Go ahead, Alejandro. Yeah, um, 
Let me see how I can frame this astral. Because partly I'm in support of the kinds of things you're talking about. And uh, in another sense, I'm, I'm wondering uh, where the philosophy went in the talk. In this sense, right, that... Uh, well, we can me, bring it back to the origin of the work of art. I did get way off of it just now. Well, from my point of view, when we start talking about things like changing the world, we're setting a, a particular goal for the work of art, and it does not seem like Heidegger ever does that. Um, that, to me, part of the, the bitter pill to swallow here is that this really is an attempt to understand uh, what art is, absolutely. And the part of the issue, I mean, of course, in from a different point of view, I want to support what you're doing, what our friends are doing. I don't question that. But uh, really, the worth of all this is going to be known in uh, hundreds of years, not tomorrow. It might matter Heidegger, to Heidegger us says what... that. Heidegger says that the, 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 the technological age, sorry to interrupt. Heidegger says that the technological age is going to go on for hundreds of years. Dostoevsky right. says it too, so, in the epilogue of Crime and Punishment. Okay, so you see what I'm saying. Uh, when we, when we, it, there's a kind of mixture here that I'm trying to put my finger on between our immediate need to do what we have to do and we see as needful in the present, and a, and, a, and a broader conception of an artwork where we have to admit, by definition, you know, there's that parenthesis in the essay where Heidegger says, only great art is meant. Okay, so most of what matters to us, the movies we like, the, even the stuff our best friends write, is not great art. It matters to us in the moment for some particular motive. But nobody is going to care about it in a couple hundred years. We need to keep both of those realities in mind if we want to take this seriously. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And and Heidegger, that's that's what Heidegger says in the Der Spiegel interview. Exactly that. That that you basically have to make this art that no one is going to look at, and you, you basically just have to offer it up to God, and you just have to keep doing that basically <coughs> until this era burns itself out um so right but I, so what i'm what i'm trying to say astral is just this okay, like i'm not i'm not i'm not pushing back on your message insofar as there's like a social and political message i'm on the same side you're on i want the same guys to succeed you know point taken as far as that goes but that is um you know if if we collapse the two then we're we're Marxists. We want art to uh, represent our political point of view. I don't think that's where you're going, and that's why I'm making the distinction. Well, say that again. I think I know what you're saying, and I think I have a response. But say it again, please. I just or... said I'm trying not to collapse the two sides. If what we want is simply that we want, if we want great art, then we need to obey the rules under which great art has always developed. If what we want is art that simply presents our point of view, then it's more like Marxism. We just want something that puts out our perspective because we want our perspective to win on political grounds, right? Not, not on any other grounds. Yeah, no. Let me be explicit here. This is not in Heidegger. Ah, uh, well, there goes an ambulance. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Was that, was that on Alejandro's end? 
No, because oh, we, we have yeah, a, he always he always yeah. <laughs> we have an ongoing thing. I'm I'm convinced Alejandro lives in the movie The Book of Eli, uh, with the crows, and then every now and then a few gunshots and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. Let me be explicit here. I'm not saying that these movies or books or paintings that that we're going to make are historic pieces of art for the ages at all. Rather. What I'm saying is in order to get from here to there, no one is ever going to do that. No one's ever going to make those things if we don't like have this culture that's generating and supporting people making art to build themselves on. Because the tradition that we come out of, right, the Renaissance, Renaissance, the Renaissance is when the flourishing began. It's when all of these forms were perfected, you know. And in in Greece, it happened uh, in the age of Pericles. Uh, This is where all the forms were perfected at the beginning of the Renaissance. And they did it by going back to the Greeks. And this is what Winkelmann's whole point is, is that you can't just blindly like hack away at a a piece of of, uh, marble. And, 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 you know, hack away at it for a, a, a year and hope that you come out with something good. You have to, like, learn the techniques and you have to study the way the Greeks did it. You have to have this whole culture. You, you have to read Winkelmann. He, he talks about how, like, the only way you can make this higher art is if you have this higher culture from whence it comes out of. You have to have people whose bodies, who are living in bodies that are the perfection of the human form that have this high class, that have this high culture from whence this art is produced. And you have to go back to the tradition and you have to learn the ways that they do it. And you have to like, you have to produce, you have to perpetuate a culture that embodies and, and generates and uh, holds these higher values up and tries to live up to them. And if you have people doing that and you persist in that, you can then eventually like work out like the next great higher form of art. And it's totally possible and realistic to believe that all this shit, all this trash has to like be washed away, has to be washed away by the tides of history so that like something pure and good and higher can then emerge, you know, in the dust of this planet to use a Nietzschean term, right? in the dust, in the wake of all of these things after they get washed away. That's why it takes hundreds of years. And then the other thing I want to say is that you can't, it's not Marxist. What I'm saying is not Marxist. I'm not saying that you should like read political philosophy and then go and try to like write a story in which your politics are like in the mouths of your characters and like expressing it to try to like push this ideology. That is itself nihilism. I'm not saying that at all. You have to get all that shit out of your mind. You have to get all that shit out of your mind and you can't try to put it into your art. All you can do is like recognize what like aesthetic beauty is. Okay. There's a difference between aesthetic beauty and sublime beauty and transcendent beauty, but you can't get to the sublime transcendent beauty without going through like the perfected aesthetic beauty first. That's what you have to focus on. So you have to try to make your art aesthetically beautiful. Uh, And then from there, 
comes the next step. So I'm absolutely not advocating that right-wing people need to, like, make quote-unquote right-wing art. You have to throw the politics away and focus only on the art. Which is why Heidegger says you have to make it for God, not for your politics. That's why you're making the art for the sleeping God who has not awakened yet. Uh, Go ahead, Artie. Oh, hi. Um, Yeah. Sorry to kind of butt into that conversation, but... No, it's not. You're not butting in. Yeah, I I just want to say, like, it was an amazing speech that you gave. um, Really interesting. And it tied together a lot of things that I've been wondering myself. Um, And I just wanted to talk about one point that you said at the very beginning that I wrote down here, which was how you talk about how um, art is something that can still inspire transcendent feelings in people, but religion is easy to, it's easy for religion to sort of succumb to um, like current day tendencies within the people and that that is what breeds nihilism. And I have sort of like one way of explaining that based on uh, this book that I've been reading, which is talking about sort of the progression of Christian iconography. So that kind of means like, you know, this word iconography talks about the motifs that are used in a kind of art. And so basically I feel like the the thing about art that I'm learning more and more, and I think we don't really understand is that like, it's very difficult to create a motif from scratch and to create a new style and a new way of portraying something. It's not like we just kind of copy from nature and that each artist is doing that. Artists are mostly copying from other artists and following a certain tradition. So I think like when artists are making a kind of Christian art, which like, you know, in in these spaces, there's a lot of modernized Christian art that still really captures the spirit of, of the religion and of the feeling within the population. And yeah, I think that the art itself has a stronger potential to do that than the religion and the rituals of the religion because those have just become empty customs. And But I think the reason for that is because there's a sort of conservatism inherent in art because it takes so long for new, like momentous changes to happen, you know, for like, for a certain tradition of depicting human beings we kind of just copy the way that it's been done in a particular style, which often just stays the same for hundreds or thousands of years. And that's why I think it has this kind of traditional connection within people. And I think it's easy for religion to kind of lose that because it gets swept up in the discourse of the current day and new ways of thinking about social issues. So yeah, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And, um, the, you know, this is a problem. <coughs> I, I wonder if Athenian has any comments on it. Uh, so, some of these guys who were working this stuff out were were aware of this. I, I know Nietzsche and Kierkegaard talk about it, which is that, like, you have to learn the style. You have to learn the, if you know, if you're an artist, you have to learn the traditional style. You have to copy the great masters and try. And, and, and Artie, you did have a good tweet on this. If you want to send it to the marquee, go ahead. Uh, you have to learn the style 
and then you have to incorporate it into your technique and into your practice and into your into your art and uh, express something new. You have to you have to express something different. So you can't just rewrite Moby Dick. You have to use Moby Dick to inspire you to write something that isn't about wailing because nobody nobody wails anymore. This is what I was saying before about how the problem with great art in a nihilistic age is it is it is it is it is it's indicative and referential to a world that is dead. People aren't wailing anymore in America. But you can use Moby Dick a, a, as a template to write about something else that that is real for people now. Uh, but what I was saying before about uh, why I, I, I name dropped Kierkegaard and Nietzsche is one of the things they say is that like sending all of these people to, to college or to university to learn all of these things, it actually lowers the practice it lowers the form it lowers the the act of making art into this uh thing that's available to everybody that everybody can participate in and it 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 doesn't become this like distilled higher practice that only a couple great masters are capable of doing it becomes something that like anybody can do so you know that's part of our predicament that's part of our plate how do we overcome that and I don't exactly have an answer uh, except to say that, like, if something is going to be born and something's going to happen, it has to happen outside the academy. It has to happen with serious people who have real training and real practice uh, and real experience in these things. But they can't be like uh, doing it within the confines, within the intellectual confines of the of the academic milieu because that's going to limit their creativity and you know these cultural movements of the past like uh, a, a great book to read on this a really great book to read on this is uh, ride the tiger evola comes to the same conclusions that all of these other guys come to uh about art but he goes through all of these artistic movements of the 20th century that are doing exactly what we're talking about and they're trying to like break out of this feedback loop they're trying to break out of the cycle and create something new and create a new culture. He talks about the surrealists and the Dadaists and he talks about uh, the beats. Um, and he basically says that like, they all failed. They, they all failed in like rescuing civilization, like from encroaching nihilism and the things they created, you know, now, now Avola doesn't say this, but I'm saying this, uh, the things they created aren't timeless, great works that are going to be read in a thousand years. You know, as much as I like Kerouac, as much as I like On the Road, I, don't, I would not put On the Road in the literary canon. However, it had a greatly significant impact on the culture for 50 years. Uh, it birthed an entire flourishing movement and an entire era of creativity, of music uh, and literature and writing that, you know, went on for 30 or 50 years and now people people remember it so this is the type of thing that i'm saying like we have to keep doing and it doesn't matter that they don't like make a great timeless masterpiece it doesn't matter that's not the point the point is to just keep it going the point is to just keep it going this is what nietzsche is talking about in the in the prologue or the introduction to zarathustra and the the tightrope walker the tightrope walker falls off the tightrope and dies Okay, but Nietzsche says he's the important one. 
he's the important one. The fact that he walked out onto the tightrope and fell off and died shows other people that like you can walk across this chasm. You can you can walk across this chasm and we can get to the other side of nihilism. Uh, but 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 like the first people that do it are going to die. So metaphorically, what that means is that like the art you're going to make is not going to like necessarily transcend the, the nihilism of our age. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it doesn't. It all it matters that it does is it keeps people going. It makes the next generation try to do their thing, and it makes the next generation try to do their thing. And the whole fucking problem with the last 25 years, 30 years or whatever it is, is nobody's doing it anymore. Nobody's trying to do anything new. As much as you might hate, you know, grunge music from the 90s, like at least it was like a continued generation and a continued evolution of like the musical forms that came before it. And it was something new. But once you get into like the 2000s and the 2010s and now, it's like, Nobody's doing anything new anymore. Everybody's just like making this like commercial pop music that uh, is just trying to like, it, it, you know, it's nihilistic. It's it's trying to like impart this like this ephemeral transient feeling of enjoyment while you're participating with the product itself and it goes away when it's over. So like, there has to be a new cultural renaissance to like try to make these things. And, 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 and it's insignificant if the art itself never attains this higher position that the, the work of art, you know, used to pertain or used to, used to, uh, uh, used to, uh, uh, that the, that the work of art used to uh, occupy. It doesn't matter. All that it matters. It is, is it inspires people to keep being creative and to keep going. So I don't know, Athenian, if you if you have any comments about like the way uh, the academy by teaching these people th- these things, you know, outside of being because all, all artists know that like if you really want to be a good artist who who's participating at the highest level of his craft, you have to like train one on one with a great master. You, you're not going to get it in a four year university program. The inspired genius is a myth. The inspired genius who just like sits down, you know, and like hammers something out. Those people are like singularities. Herman Melville, like, is is one of a a a a, 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 a very small number, single digit number of people in history who can sit down and produce a great masterpiece like that, kind of in a vacuum. Is usually people who are training under great masters who have tons of resources behind them. Uh, but you know, to get, to get there, to distill that out of this like morass, uh, of technological nihilism is something that takes like a whole culture to be participating in for generations. And you know, that, that trite saying, you know, uh, something about, uh, a guy who, uh, plants a tree under whose shade he's never going to sit like but his grandchildren will like, that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do because these things, like the reason why dark ages exist is because these things die and go away. And the people who could do these things like aren't alive anymore and there's nobody around to teach them anymore. And it has to all get started and it takes centuries. So like if we're entering a dark age now, 
it, the dark age is being brought brought about by technology. And the only way to like come out the other side of that dark age is to like continue trying to do these things. Yeah. Let me just, just add real quickly here. Um, I shamelessly added up to the top up there. My, my, my recent update to the website, cause I've, I've added about five hours worth of commentary, uh, to that section of Zarathustra's prologue it begins at uh, 1.3 and it goes up through 1.5, two sections on the overman, one on the last man, but really more than that, because once you get into six and seven, it, you see that Zarathustra re- replaces the last man and you never really hear much from it in the text. Again, he replaces it with what he refers to as the good and the just. And, What's important to keep in mind there is that every society is going to have a good and a just. That's what defines virtue. These are concepts under which we say what is that proper thing with which one is striving towards. And uh, what you were mentioning there about the the inspired genius, the in the context of Nietzsche or Zarathustra, there is no pluralization of the overman in the entire text except for i think just one time and it occurs in the same passage where nietzsche is uh, speaking of poets and the only way in which overman gets pluralized is precisely in the context of the overman being wrongly understood by the disciples And so the whole purpose of when he's talking about what he looks for in that second of the two sections on the overman, it's this 1.4. It's this, I refer to it as Zarathustra's love speech because he's running down this list of all the things he loves about man, which is to say the things he's looking for in his disciples or his followers, I guess we could say, is that they, they, they have an, an eros within themselves, a striving within themselves that happily squanders itself for a higher purpose. Even if that higher purpose is not themselves, it's perfectly clear that Zarathustra does not understand the people he's talking to as becoming the overman. He understands them as paving the way for the overman. And so this gets to the much deeper discussion of culture itself not just within Nietzsche but in particular within Zarathustra and the case that I make and I back it up with a number of references to other things outside of Zarathustra that Nietzsche says in the publications not just the Naklas is is that the last man is modern technological man he has some absolutely fascinating things to say about Nietzsche does about technology and, and the grievances that he's going to have with it. But that's, that's the problem is it is, it is the problem of culture and prior to Zarathustra, the way that this arises in Nietzsche, and it was something that was on the table for a great discussion and debate within Germany. Uh, I mean, really the entirety of the 19th century, but it's this question of the, the so-called cult of the genius uh, which is to say that these singular individual people that, that could arise, but only through the hard labors of people, of a significant amount of people who were 
as we would say, cultivating the soil to make them possible. This is the whole point of uh, the Beirut festival that Nietzsche and Wagner were so involved in is that they were hoping for this new revival, this renaissance and its failure. What, what became of it is this failure is, is where Nietzsche goes his own direction regarding this journey that's going to take him towards, towards the overman. But uh, there's so very, very much that's, that's rich and deep just in those. I mean, we're talking only five or six pages uh, of Zarathustra about this topic. And um, like I said, I mean, I, I, I think I've, I've uploaded at least like five hours on it. I've got still got another couple hours I'll add before I, before I go further, but, but to, to understand Nietzsche fundamentally. And I think, and, and let's also keep in mind, Heidegger is absolutely building off of this because remember the whole point of the, well, I wouldn't say the whole point of it, but what's happening simultaneously, certainly in Heidegger's mind as he's writing that essay, is his confrontation or his elaboration and, and interpretation of Nietzsche, but in particular, the will to power as art or art as the will to power in Nietzsche. You know what? And I was just reminded, uh, and I blame you, uh, that you, you carry a large burden of this, Alejandro. I was very explicit that I urgently needed an explanation of the objective and the subjective genitive and the work of the phrase, the work of art. So I will still be expecting that at some point uh, because I fear I might have messed that up. And it is very, very important for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to. Uh, don't worry. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have much more to say about it once Alejandro clarifies it for me or ancient if he's still in here. Uh, I know you guys ignored my urgency. Uh, but it was, it's not wasted on me that it, I did, in fact, send that to you guys. Uh, Alejandro, I think you had your hand up. I, I, I appreciated your insight, and I hope I was able to clarify what I originally said that you were responding to uh, by elaborating on it. Yeah, man. Uh it's a good dialogue. I'm not. I, I. I don't. I don't have anything left over from that. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly when I raised my hand. I think that the main bit that I was thinking about just goes back to hammering on this point about the distinction between what we can do now and what might be for the ages. And I thought about, especially when you refer to Melville. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about Moby Dick is that it, it's in this category of a kind of encyclopedic work where, I mean, you said uh, rightly, of course, that, that whaling is not what it was at the time. But anyone that reads Moby Dick will notice that it, it is full of information about whaling. And so it bears all of the details that someone might need to understand or appreciate it it it, it in some sense raises them to a, a transhistorical level um so that whaling isn't only this phenomenon of of whatever of 19th century america but you get all of the information you need to read the other chapters of moby dick in which uh something is unfolding that isn't 
local. And uh, I want to sort of connect this back to the earlier exchange we had about the holy. Because I was left thinking about that remark you made about the, the God is the God of that place. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I agree. I mean, I, I agree as far as the, yes, the God is the God of that place. But I think the weight of the weight that Heidegger puts on the holy is greater than that. The holy is not localized in that way. And I've heard you talk tonight about, I think at one point you said a new religion, and a couple of times you, you've talked about uh, a, a connection to God or the divine. And it, it seems to me what Heidegger is talking about in the essay is our just the, the very possibility of us having any connection to the divine. And he calls that the holy. And the work of art has a particular role in, in sort of preparing us or predisposing us to the holy. And uh, in that sense, right, I mean, if we take this example of Melville, the details about whaling if you take those chapters of Moby Dick that are just the, you know, this is these, these are the different kinds of whales or this is the harpoon or here's how the line works or, or any of those chapters, and you simply treat them as, as these sort of informative, strange chapters. I mean, when I was in high school and we read Moby Dick, we skipped over those. The teacher literally gave us a, a syllabus in which you only read the narrative chapters of Moby Dick. So in some sense, you had, you know, you, you just got this kind of uh, uh, pure narrative. The, the way that Melville sort of prepared that for us as something that could invoke something greater is in some important sense in those details. But at the same time, the details don't depend on us caring about them. You see what I'm saying? I do, but what's the what's the ultimate th thrust of the insight? Well, the ultimate thrust is that uh, again, we we just come down to this this divide between what's what's relevant or important to us now. I mean, to choose a counterpoint, you talked about Kerouac and On the Road, and these kinds of works might just have a they might have an expiration date, right? They might not. No one might care about them in, in several hundred years. And yet, I think it's pretty likely someone might care about Moby Dick in several hundred years. And that is part of the question about the work of art, that the work of art brings as part of its importance, it brings its own context, it educates the reader. Right, Dante might be another perfect example where it brings all of the information that you need to appreciate what's happening but if you just treat it as, as something that just uh, dredges up all of this historical information about these Italians you read about in the footnotes, you're missing the point. Well, I like to think that, you know, because what Dante does is he gathers this entire cosmology into his story. And uh, what, what Melville does is he gathers this entire you know, world, the entire, the, the, the entirety, I mean, they call it an encyclopedic novel. <clears throat> the entirety of the world of whaling is contained within it. Um, so I'd like to think that 
a novel like that is possible uh, in an age like today. And, you know, I just did a space. My last space was on Infinite Jest. And David Foster Wallace tried to do that with, you know, postmodern 90s America. And, you know, I've done like four or five episodes on Infinite Jest. And one of the main questions is, you know, did he succeed in creating this transcendent, you know, uh, classic piece of literature the same way Melville or Dostoevsky or Dante did. And I, I go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, like, I don't think he did. I think he came really close. I think he was like Icarus and he did fly towards the yeah, sun. I'm having connection issues, so I will drop out and come back. Yeah, you'll get the mic when you come back. Uh, you know, I think I think uh, David Foster Wallace probably flew close to the sun that is Dante and Moby Dick and almost got there and his wings melted and he failed and he ended in tragedy. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's simply a perfect example of what I was talking about, about the tightrope walker. Uh, if, 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 if David Foster Wallace wrote the great American novel, but he didn't write, you know, a timeless classic that's going to be uh, added to the Western canon. Uh, you could look at it two ways. You could say that era is over and that that's not possible and that he was like the last great writer who tried to do that. Or you could say the fact that he came so close is proof that uh, it can be done and someone has to keep trying to do it. You know, I like to think that uh, a novel like that for our, <clears throat> I mean, what do we even call today's world? I wouldn't even call it postmodern. It's post-postmodern. It's hypermodern. Um, I like to think that it is possible for someone to write that novel. The question is, is someone going to do it? You know, that's why I spent so much time belaboring the details of the suffering that the artist has to go through to, to do this, you know, David Foster Wallace locked himself in a basement apartment in Syracuse, New York, in, in an obscure post-industrial town at the tail end of the Rust Belt, uh, uh, furiously writing this novel over a course of three years. Are people going to do that now? I don't know. If, they, if they're not, I can tell you this, the reason they're not is because of technology, because they're going to uh, be on their phone. They're going to be scrolling social media. They're going to be playing video games. You know, this was all part of David Foster Wallace's experience. While he was writing this book, the TV was on incessantly, 24 hours a day, blaring behind him. And he still was able to, to hammer it out. Um, and his failure, if he, if he is a failure, which, you know, I, I think he succeeded in writing the great American novel, but failed in writing Moby Dick. Um his failure is symptomatic of the age he was trying to encapsulate within his great novel. Um, Can I say something about that? Astro? Yeah, please do. Please, please. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, so I, some, some people here know I've been preparing this space on the idea of the canon. And one of the things that that's interested me is that it's not just that there's a, a series of canonical works, but that the genres that the canonical works fall into shift. So for example, epic poetry is canonical at a certain point, but at a certain point becomes impossible, 
right? And then you have other genres appear later on. So the novel is a relatively late development and, and also may have an expiration date. So some of what uh, someone like David Foster Wallace might have been dealing with is just that the novel was kind of over. <laughs> and that wasn't his fault necessarily. You were, you were gesturing towards this and we know you know, uh, just statistically that people like memoirs more than novels, and it may be that memoir has replaced the novel, but so far as I know, there is yet to be a, anything considered a great memoir. So partly, part of the question might be about struggling towards a new form. I mean, fucking fantastic contribution. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Uh, but the problem I have with that unfortunately. And I've thought about this a lot. The problem I have with that is these new forms are like so ephemeral. They're like phantoms passing, you know, through a dream, you know? So you have people writing these tweets, you know, I've read tweets that are like transcendently funny or insightful and it's a great form. It's a great form, but it's, it's just like scrolls by and gets lost in obscurity, you know, and it's gone forever. And it's just like, yeah, go ahead. I'm so sorry, dude. Can I, can I jump in here for 10 seconds? Because you're nailing it on the head. I just want to add one thing. Mm. The, the form is such an important point here. I think we are the retards of history. Like, like those, the millennials and those of us right now, those of us trapped in, in the moment when humans truly start to interact with the digital as the way of life, we don't know how to do it. And so we're compulsive and masturbatory. We're onanistic with it. But there's no guarantee that our children or our children's children are going to be just as onanistic with the medium as we are. And I just want to say that, it, it, and this, is, it, this ties into everything that's been said, <clears throat> we have no idea how people are going to consume and enjoy and create 100 years from now. The, the clay tablet might make a comeback, literally. Like when, when humans are colonizing the solar system, it might be very popular to only consume in forms from the BC era just because it becomes popular because some celebrity says it should. I know that sounds insane right now, but I do think no. you have to be careful predicting what people 100 years from now are going to find compelling. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you so much. No, that's a fantastic insight. I want to say... I've, I've said this before, I think. I think I said this in another episode, but uh, whenever a new technology is introduced, it totally makes the society schizophrenic. And the first couple generations that have to interact with this, like, it takes a process of it incorporating itself into, like, civilization and into the culture. And the first couple of cultures that, excuse me, the first couple of generations that encounter this new technology... Uh, they're fucked up by it. And a whole bunch of people get thrown into the fucking dustbin of history. They get thrown into the trash heap. Uh, this literally happened with the Protestant Reformation and uh, the printing press. The printing press, you know, they start printing the Bible. They start printing pamphlets. They put all these new ideas out there. Uh, and it causes chaos. And it causes wars. And people are killed. But something new is eventually born out of it. Once the chaos kind of uh, subsides... And uh, uh, people like incorporate the technology into their culture and into their civilization. It sort of like restabilizes itself, and something new is able to come out of it. And right now, we're living through the chaos imbued 
or the chaos uh, inspired by uh, uh, the, the, the internet. So, you know, people are talking about like genital mutilation and how it's like a death cult, which it is. I mean, the whole homosexual thing is a death cult because it doesn't, it doesn't produce life. Uh, this is a contagion being, it's a mind virus being spread by the internet and it has to just burn itself out. And we have to accept the fact that people are going to be thrown into this meat grinder and people are going to die and, and like bloodlines are going to be, you know, are going to die off and art forms are also going to be killed by it. They're going to, they're going to go away. So, uh, you basically have to like, I mean, this is why Evola's book is called ride the tiger. You can't like fight it. It's not going to get you anywhere. You basically just have to like hold on to its back while it like tears through the village and tears everyone to shreds. And hopefully you're still holding on when the tiger is exhausted and then you can flip it over onto its back and, you know, cut its belly open. I have to end this space though. I'm like really, uh, I'm really like burning out here, but Rex has had his hand up for a while. Athene's back. So I want to give Rex a chance to go, give Thene a chance to respond. I see a lot of cool people with their requesting the mic, but I worry I'm not going to be able to get to you because I've been going for two and a half hours. But uh, Rex, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I love to listen to your, um, <clears throat> I love to listen to your call to action about this this art stuff because it's inspiring, really. Um, I wondered, you know. He doesn't really get into deep philosophy stuff. It's a polemic. Um, but it was a couple of years ago when I read it, but Tom Wolfe's Painted Word, I think, does. Um, it's a good, you know, kind of introduction to this, like, consumption of art and by critique. Um, he, at the end, he points to realism and... Uh, in photography and and I think in fine art as well as like I don't know if as like a refuge for um, art artists um, or as a way out um, and so and obviously like realism <clears throat> and photography that's that's making use of technique or like kind of going going back to technique and and leaving the realm of like concept and reference um, I don't know, maybe he sees it as a way to like weed out sophistry, uh, sophist and so on. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, critique consumed fine art because, because, um, like you were saying, you know, li literature is like the, it, you know, was the next step and, and like fine art was dead anyway. I don't know. It seems like, I don't know. I wonder if you have anything to say about that. What do you think about, did you read the painted word? What do you think about, um, about technique in the sense of like realism? Uh, what do you think about, um, is it, is, is it refuge? Was he right? Is it refuge or is it a way out? Um, yeah. Well, I think a lot, of, I think a lot about realism. I have a lot to say about realism, uh, but I, it's probably too much to, to get into this new topic this late in the game but I, I haven't read that book however i have read uh the decline of art the decline of western art by uh brendan hurd who uh runs aureus press <coughs> and he has the 
Twitter account, Trad Western Art. Uh, and he talks quite a lot about that book. Um, and that book is about the superseding of the intellectualization, what I said before, that the intellectualization completely uh, subsumes the art itself, where, where the art is nothing and the critique is, is all that matters. Um, but all I can say about realism now in the short time we have is that realism is unfortunately as good as it is, as, as much as I like realism, realism is a movement that emerges kind of at the very, very end of, 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 of art, of, 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 of a movement. Um, realism is kind of itself a nihilistic form of expression or, or, or materialistic form of expression, which uh, I think has run its course. And I also think realism leads directly into uh, bizarre kind of meaningless uh, nonsense art um, because uh, you can only say so much. So to make a long story short, I basically think realism is a sign that your culture has sort of exhausted itself uh, and is now has nothing more to say. Um, but, but whenever these new f forms or these new uh, forms of expression emerge, there is a time period in which they are, uh, in which they are viable, in which they are viable, in which they are a way for creativity to express itself, uh, so they will have a flourishing period, but I worry the realism, the period of realism is over now. Uh, like if you think about like film, it, it got into realism in American film, it became popular like with like Quentin Tarantino and like in the nineties, um, this is American. I know French realism and British realism was already a thing had already happened. Uh, but it, it just immediately gives way to like, more and more sensationalistic blockbuster, you know, eye candy and garbage. Um, I think this happens, I said it before, with the Impressionists. They were realists in a way uh, because of the scenes they were depicting were realistic scenes. Uh, of course, their depiction of the scenes was not itself, like, realistic. But uh, because they came at the end, the tail end of the realism epoch in painting, uh, and then it immediately gave way to, you know, cubism, which is garbage and abstract expressionism, which is just like chaos. Uh, so so that's what I think about realism. But that's, you know, there's a lot more to say about it. I just can't get into it. I haven't read Tom Wolfe's book. I need to, though. Um, Athenian, go ahead. I'm sorry, man. I can't stop laughing because I, I've had such terrible connection issues. And I was just hearing something about rolling over with bellies. And so I, I bombed the nest up there with a picture of Nelson. Um, so so I'll let, I'll let someone else, uh, if they want to uh, hop in here. If they go. Hey, Astro, Astro, can I say one more thing? I'm so sorry. Yeah, of course, man. Don't, don't apologize. Okay, so these are notes I took from earlier, but I think it puts a nice little bow on it, at least Bro, for me, because I'm a self-centered. Are you in the jungle, man? What the hell? No, I'm sorry. My, my neighbor raises hunting dogs, and it's feeding time. I apologize. Um. Dude, this is this is literally right out of uh, my cousin Vinny. Dude, I he can't ever get any sleep because of this. <laughs> I, honestly, we don't even hear him anymore. Um, okay, so the question of what is art, in my opinion, it's uh, it's for the artist. It's compulsive. It's skillful, and it's accessible. 
Like you have to do it. You do it well. And lots of other people see what you do. Like that's that if you're going to boil it down to brass tacks. And then in terms of what gets remembered, it's what are you looking at? Who is doing the looking? And then who looks at it later? And I know that, that we're starting to bleed into nihilism with that. But honestly, I, I, I stand by this. The best musicians don't make their money doing music. And I think it ties into exactly what you were saying. Like when art becomes a profession, art dies. And it, it ties in really well with the, the realism thing because what follows realism? Fucking cubism. That's, and it's ugly. So I, I just want to throw that in. I'm sorry about the uh, hunting dogs. They, they always do this right at this time. Yep. Hold on. Let me just add real quickly something to, to even help further support some things that he was saying is that this is precisely what Nietzsche has to say about philosophy uh, in the late 19th century. He says, when philosophy becomes a profession, when it is something that one can, for instance, put in one's bio or something like that on Twitter uh, and, say, and claim the mantle of philosopher and claim that, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday from, you know, one o'clock till two thirty uh, for this particular class, we will be philosophizing or every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for, you know, from 12 to one will be philosophizing. He says that is the death of philosophy, because on the one hand there, uh, there's the state or the government that has a big hand in the universities. And so the professors will always uh, really just fold uh, for what the state demands it to do, which we're literally living through. Uh, there's that on the one hand. And then there's also this silly belief that, that philosophy lends itself to a kind of process or something like that that can just be done or democratized to everyone. So I think that that uh, lends some very powerful support to a number of things that uh, that the, the, the individual just speaking uh, put so well. So just wanted to add that real quickly. All right. Well, good. I'm glad you said that, Athene. That's what I was talking about before about the academy, about how, you know, <laughs> the painters learning in the academies nice as it is in one way it's like a, it's also a way of like democratizing and like and like sort of like uh leveling you know the the artistic practice itself it's actually part of its dissolution um i have to go i have to end this i will let rs have the last word though just because i always like to hear from him i'm sorry to anyone who requested that didn't get the mic, but uh, we're closing in on three hours here. I'm burnt. Uh, I mentioned I had a glass of rum. That glass of rum is now gone. I just don't think I can go on. Last time I did a space, I fell asleep for like a half an hour <laughs> at the end. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming, uh, Miss Anthropus. Good to have your contributions. But RS, please, I, I am... Uh, honored to give you the last word <laughs> okay well thanks astral and uh with the amount of alcohol that you've consumed uh cheers to your bladder um three hours that's that's quite a long time but uh i wanted to return actually to uh just briefly if i could uh to the exchanges that you had with alejandro which i, I found were very interesting quite specifically uh in the essay uh with your discussions about locality and example three the temple so let me just give a concrete example and then I, I just, I kind of want to end and ask you and Athenian a specific question about nihilism uh, and your interpretation of late Heidegger's nihilism. So I'd, I, I tend to think um, that a good example of examining this essay, particularly the temple, there, there's actually uh, something in Houston uh, near the Manil 
it's it's actually it's a chapel uh, that the Manil Foundation uh, that was the Manil Foundation was started by the heiress to the Schlumberger oil money, and so they have old world connections, and they did a deal. Uh, with the Greek government to bring over some frescoes from Cyprus, uh, Byzantine frescoes. Uh, the condition from the Greek government was that they had to be housed in a Greek chapel. So the Manil Foundation, uh, they actually built uh, a Greek chapel to house them in. Now, interestingly, the chapel itself, um, it's closed now, but uh, it was built with a very modernist, very brutalist architecture uh, using concrete slabs. And on the inside, there's actually the skeleton or superstructure of a chapel that's built in steel uh, and glass. And the frescoes were housed in there. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was done in that manner uh, as a, a neutral uh, observation point from, from, uh, from the perspective for which uh, one, one could view the frescoes. And for me, this is what I thought of when I was listening to your presentation on the essay. Um, there... Um, to me, it's, a, it's, it's really indicative of the movement of uh, art as a work of art to simply being an art object because the object, the art object, is completely divorced from its cultural milieu as the specific locality in which the art was produced. Now, what's interesting to me from a Heideggerian perspective is that it also speaks to temporality. So, uh, my understanding of being in time is that we, as Dasein, are, you know, just a little bit of recollection, are thrown, in our thrownness, we're thrown into a world not of our choosing. And that authentic uh, being, authentic Dasein, is, is, is accepting one's temporality, where being comes to become identified with time. So you understand your own existence against the horizon of the time with which you have left to live. And to live authentically is to live in that understanding that you're a finite being. For me, um, you know, temples and cathedrals, you know, they stand as an expression to let us know um, that we're finite beings. And nihilism, as I understand it from the early Heidegger, is the forgetfulness of being. Uh, in other words, to live inauthentically, but at a collective level. Um, I, I'd never considered, I, I haven't read much of the late Heidegger, but I had never considered that nihilism for Heidegger had any, any type of moral valence to it. And yet in the, in the beginning part of this space, it seemed that you and Athenian uh, were suggesting that perhaps after his turn, maybe it took on a social or a political uh, valence. And so I'm just curious, for the late Heidegger, did he remain neutral on this? Was nihilism simply uh, still for him the forgetfulness of being that is living inauthentically, um, not being tied to a locale where something like a temple um, could root us in place and give us the horizon of our own being? Or did nihilism actually did take on a moral valence for, for the late Heidegger. I, that, that confused me. That, that's what I was really stuck with uh, in this space, and that's the question that I wanted to ask. Hope that makes sense. Uh, yeah, makes Astral, don't you dare end this fucking space. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, I have to be clear about something, and I think this happened a couple times. I was talking about both Across the Line and the origin of the work of art. 
one one thing that's really great about the origin of the work of art, by the way, is he talks about a lot of concepts and uses a lot of terminology that he uses elsewhere and elucidates them and clarifies them. So he talks about the thrownness, for example. He talks about other things, too, from other work. Uh, and he sort of ties it all to the work of art. Um, in terms of a moral valence, uh, I don't know for sure. I don't exactly have an answer for that, but um, it's in Junger. So if it sounded like I was talking about it, it that way, I, I may have been talking about the Junger essay. Um, so it could have been a bit of a mashup, and I, I just wasn't discriminating I think, I think was between a... sort of the Heideggerian strain and the, and the Junger strain, perhaps. Yeah, I think it was a conflation, and it may have... I may have not made it clear. Part of the problem is that I don't, I don't do podcasts where I, uh, you know, like there's this really great guy on YouTube, uh, Gregory Sadler. Um, but what he does is he goes through the different works that he's talking about with a fine tooth comb and he goes through them chronologically and he, ex he explains and he, uh, he, he elaborates on passage after passage to sort of um, clarify what the essay is about. I don't do that at all. I rather incorporate all these different insights and all these different names that I drop. And I, I, I try not to be a name dropper, but I also want to balance uh, telling you, you know, ideas that I'm presenting. I don't want to pass them off as my own. And, um, so I wasn't at any point, you know, this wasn't a, an attempt to like, uh, give a, give a university lecture on the origin of the work of art. Um, I, I was rather kind of throwing all of these things in to help bolster the point and the insight that I wanted to make about, you know, our condition, uh, as far as morals go, younger comes across far more moralistic uh, not that he's moralizing, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, he talks about arrows and he talks about human rela interpersonal relationships. And he talks about much more uh, personal things, where, whereas Heidegger is much more technically philosophical. Uh, so in terms of moralizing or moral judgments or moral valence, I don't really think Heidegger has one. Heidegger has one. I do have a lot to say about what you brought up but it the the thing we have to keep in mind for heidegger that's really important that, that i don't think really any of the heideggerian scholars put enough emphasis on this the only person i've actually heard bring this up is athenian uh which is that like heidegger stopped doing philosophy heidegger moved to the black forest and because he says that, like, once you come to a certain point, you realize that there's nothing more to say. And he says that, like, philosophy is not the thing that's going to get us out of this. Philosophy is not the thing that's going to overcome nihilism. So, like, why do it anymore? And in one of his essays somewhere in his later writings, he, he says that, like, once you figure this all out and once you've, like, said all of this... You, there's, there's nothing else to say anymore. And the problem is, is that at the same time that that is true about philosophy, I mean, because he called Nietzsche the last philosopher, um, it also becomes true of art. 
uh, there comes, and John Barth says this in the literature of exhaustion, people who read Heidegger need to read the literature of exhaustion by John Barth, because he says the same thing that Heidegger says about philosophy. He says about art, which is that like, if you're, and this is, this gets right directly back to the conversation we were already having, uh, a form exists, an artistic form exists to express something. And you can only express so much through that form. And once you've expressed, and this is in Hegel, <laughs> this is in Hegel. He says this explicitly and directly. Once you've expressed the thing that that form was created to express, that form is closed now and there's nothing more to say. Uh, and that's why he calls it the literature of exhaustion. He talks about how like music has expressed itself completely. And that's why John Cage had a, had, had, had a piece that uh, is called like four minutes and 15 seconds of silence because he was trying to make the point that like <coughs> music, that classical medium had nothing more to say. It had already expressed what it had to express. You know, and you can go on and on and on. Uh, the novel, uh, people stop write. Do people stop writing novels because nobody can write novels anymore and because nobody reads them, or do they stop writing novels because the the novel came into being to express a very particular thing? That particular thing being the condition of the individual psyche in a materialistic world, trying to like connect itself to something higher. Uh, once it has expressed that, like what do you do with the form of the novel? Well, you either keep, and I'm just repeating myself at this point, which is why we need to end. Do you keep expressing the same thing over and over and over again? Or do you just let the form close itself off and be done and you move on to the next thing? Uh, the problem with that, this is what I said before. We live after the end. The end already happened. We, we, we're not at the end. The end is in the past. So, what does that mean? Does that mean we wait for the new form to emerge or do we actively try to make a new form? The problem is about self-reflection and understanding and, and intellectualization is that like once you over-intellectualize it, it, it has to be spontaneous in other words. Like once you over-intellectualize it, once the whole culture is over-intellectualizing it, you know, the art is debased. It debases the art. So I have to go. I can't talk anymore. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to end the space. Thanks, Astro. Yes, yes. I hope I answered your question. Uh, Athenian, I did promise him the, the last word in, in, in a private message, so I see his hands up, so I will end it after he uh, makes his contribution. Oh, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll make it short. I was um, sitting here trying to cook some chicken. Um, if, if there was any indication that I was suggesting a kind of moral valence in any way whatsoever to Heidegger that that's not what I was suggesting. Um, I don't find it in Heidegger. And I think for, for good reason, at least according to Heidegger, uh, the, the closest he'll ever get to really discussion, discussing these, this question of ethics is to my knowledge. And I want to emphasize, I'm not a Heideggerian expert. I, I I'm just, uh, I'm competent in Heidegger. I would not say I'm an expert, but uh, you'd have to look in his letter on humanism because that's what he's addressing is that uh, he simply says we're not ready for discussions of ethics yet or morality. And what 
ultimately I think that comes back around to is his, he's much closer to Nietzsche in the understanding of what we would think of otherwise as a kind of creating our own values, creating our own uh, goals. Uh, and the, the best statement of this, I think, in Heidegger that you could find would be in Being in Time, where he says, and he also mentions this very briefly, and it's sort of a different way in the origin of art essay, is that da- Dasein worlds, that's what it means to world, is to sort of create these things. Uh, and so that's that's going to that's going to be the probably the closest you'll ever get to an understanding of what we would otherwise think of as morality or ethics in, in Heidegger. So, yeah, thank you for that. That, that, that was a better, a better answer to RS's question. I agree completely. I, I probably couldn't have put it that way, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay. Well, I have, uh, at least one follow-up planned for this topic. Um, but, uh, I want to say I'm, I'm pleased that I, I hope Athenians satisfied with this because uh, I said everything I wanted to say and I didn't think I was going to get to it, but uh, I probably did that by talking over Athenian, which uh, <laughs> I'm sorry about if I did. No, not, not at all. No, <laughs> that's not at all how I interpret it. I, I, I very much enjoyed uh, this space. Uh, I, I especially liked uh, the comments here from uh, Alejandro, from, uh, from, from uh, the outgoing misanthrope and from RS. I mean, I, I thought this was, this was helpful. I think so too. Um, yeah. So I was going to, I was originally going to say, we'll probably have three spaces. I'll probably only need to do one more now. I think I, I think I covered everything. I'm just getting over what, what probably was COVID. I know COVID has been going around. Uh, I, I never got tested, but uh, I, this was the first day I've felt like I could talk uh, and I'm still not a hundred percent, but uh yeah, we, we did well. Thank you for oh, hang, hang on. Let, let me just add one last thing. Uh, this this is actually quite important for those who are interested in this topic. This is the stuff I'm doing with my series on on this this topic and the nihilism technology. Is that the essay immediately after the origin of the work of art by Heidegger and positioned in the collection of essays by Heidegger is the age of the world picture. And the age of the world picture is going to be precisely where he really nails down what he sees as what we we could otherwise think of as planetary nihilism because of technology. And something to keep in mind is that what is the primary image that he used to get his point across in the essay on the origin of art? Well, it was, remember the reference to the picture, the painting. And so now he's going to turn around immediately and, and title an entire essay called The Age of the World Picture, which is to say the age in which everyone views things by inframing or thinking objective, objectively. So that's, that's, that's crucial uh, in this broader puzzle that we're putting together about Heidegger, technology, art, and all these things. So he's going to use art itself uh, and in particular, the way in which we tend to view art or understand fine art, in other words, uh, which is not what Heidegger wants us to do. He's going to say that's the wrong thing to do. Uh, but he's going to use that as the image in which he paints a picture of our future, which is planetary global nihilism. Wait, that's planetary global. That's Department of Redundancy Department. My apologies. But planetary nihilism. So, 
Yes. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yes, that's right. Uh, I want to say that um, Athenian recommended to me this book called, or he actually mailed it to my house, uh, Deadly Thought on uh, Hamlet, one of the best books I've ever read. Actually, some of the insights in that informed my insights tonight. And then he also recommended to me Junger's essay, Across the Line, which was a, a, a bit of a slog because I said it was depressing because he's just... He's detailing how everything succumbs to nihilism, but it ends up being worth it in the end uh, because he does give you he does give you concrete advice on how to overcome how to deal with that condition and then overcome it. Uh, so I just want to say for anyone who stayed through this entire three hours, thank you so much. It means a lot. I notice when people stay for the whole thing, and uh, I, it's not lost on me, and I appreciate it. In fact, it keeps me going, makes me want to do it again. Um, but for the listener in perpetuity, uh, I can't recommend Younger's Over the Line uh, strongly enough. A- absolutely indispensable. Uh, if you like Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, um, and you ha- and you like Heidegger, you have to read that essay. It's a good place to start, though, if you're a novice on any of these topics. And also, if you're interested in Heidegger, I would I would recommend the Letter on Humanism and uh origin of the work of art and um quite a number of things me and me and athenian dropped tonight we kind of just threw a bunch of concepts and ideas and terminology out as if the listener was familiar with them if this is the first time you've listened to me and him discourse uh and you enjoyed it strongly recommend you go over my Substack and or my itunes and spotify uh podcast Listen to every episode with him on it chronologically, because uh, more than anything else, I mean, he's been on my show more than anyone, first of all, because he's the best. But uh, I couldn't do it without him. Uh, absolutely. Uh, two, two, two very specific people, him and Raw Egg Nationalist. Uh, I, I was at one point going to give up everything. I was done. I, I wasn't on Twitter for months. Uh those are the two guys who got me to come back and got me to do what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I feel I'm on the next level. I'm, I've, I've come to the next level, both with my studies, but also just, uh, you know, I've, I've far surpassed any goals I've had with, uh, what I consider accomplishments. I have modest goals. I'm not looking to be Joe Rogan. Uh, but, uh, I do need to be in a certain place to make this worth my time. And I'm in that place. And I'm there because of him and Rod Nationalist, and I say that unequivocally. So go to my show, listen, and the person who's been on my show the second most number of times is Rod Nationalist. But anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting a little sentimental. Uh, let, let me let me also be on record as saying that Raw Egg Nationalist is one of the uh, greatest guys to to know. He is absolutely. Uh, just unwavering in his support of Anons. Uh, he's you're, you're not going to outwork him either. I sometimes no, you're, wonder you're not. <laughs> he's not he's not even human the way that he's able to, to churn up these things out. And the fact that he's such just a, a really honest, decent guy. I mean, if you if well, anyway, I'll get sentimental. about. He's just a fucking amazing guy. I'll just leave it at that. And um, but yeah, anyway, sorry. 
No, of course, of course. I mean, lit- I mean, qu- quite literally, uh, you and he are the only reason I'm still around. I, I was, I was gone. Uh, but anyhow, the point I'm trying to make, the point I meant to say, for those of you who are still bearing with me, is that if you go to my blog and you listen to the Heidegger, uh, I think it's called um, Heidegger and the Terminator. That's where this all starts. That's where me and me and Athenian uh, uh, talk about uh, the question concerning technology in great detail. We talk about what in framing is. You can't really understand what we talked about tonight without understanding what in framing is. So read the essay, the question concerning technology, and listen to the Heidegger and the Terminator essay. Then we have one called Overcoming Nihilism. Where we, where we suss out, we ask, are we living in a nihilistic age? And we give examples of, of, of why the answer is yes, this is a nihilistic age, and what nihilism is. And we use Dostoevsky and Nietzsche to, uh, to you know, bolster our argument. The next essay after that is called Faith Regained. And it's, again, it's basically part two. It's about... Uh, uh, Nietzsche and uh, Dostoevsky again and it's like uh, is it possible to go through nihilism and then uh, come out the other side with faith in God uh, and then there's another one on there with is actually which is actually with Scott Mannion where we talk uh, more much more about Heidegger and we bring in Carl Jung all of these and there's another one Athenian was on but I can't remember what it was but the point being all of the things, the concepts and the terminology that we talk about here, it's all elaborated on in great detail in those past episodes. So if you go listen to them, it will greatly enhance your insight into what we had to say today. Um, and then, of course, do all the reading. All right. So, you know, that's that's what you that's what you can do if you don't want to be a, a, just a passive listener and you want to be an engaged uh, member of the community. <laughs> And you should also pay me money, by the way. You should you should become a paid member to my Substack, and uh, and 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 right. I'm drunk enough that I'm going to stop myself now. <coughs> but you should do many many other. You should show me praise and value in many other ways that you see fit, in addition to sending me money. All right, thank you. Goodbye. Good night. I love you all.